0: Welcome to episode two thirty-seven with my guest Gladys A. I'm Paul Gilmartin. Martin. Is the Mental Illness Happy Hour a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads? From medically diag- di- <laughs> is this is how it's going to be. <laughs> From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is a mentalpod.com. There's all kinds of stuff you can do there. You can join the forum, you can read blogs, you can fill out a survey, which we like to read on the uh, show, and uh, even even if you uh, your survey isn't read on the show, um, it gets uh, usually gets read and it helps us get to uh, know who you are uh, better. Um, Ha- I shared with you guys last week about the um, shooting, uh, the suicide by cop that I that I had uh, seen the week before, and um, I think I experienced the first. I I hesitate to u- use the word PTSD because that that might mean for a minute uh, not minimizing something that happened to me uh, or that I am experiencing but i was in the grocery store with uh with my wife um last weekend and so this would have been about a week after the the event happened and um i got so angry and normally i'm really chill like when i'm in a, a grocery store even if it's crowded but i was just uh i just wanted to i wanted to punch people and i started um um like talking to my wife but loud enough for the slow cashier and the slow person checking out in front of us you know just loud enough that they could that I, I, they could hear and, and you know I was making faces and rolling my eyes and it uh you know I justified it because I wasn't doing directly it directly at them but it was uh, it was not cool and I didn't realize at the time that that might have been um you know a ripple of the fucked up thing that I'd seen the week before but here's what's cool about being in recovery and therapy and doing all the you know the the work uh, that that I've done on myself is um I I was able to connect the dots and say oh that that was probably um a result of what I'd seen the week before. And just that knowledge um felt comforting. I I think a lot of times one of the biggest things we need to know is what we're experiencing is an actual thing, that it's not made up in our mind, that that it's not that we're not just lazy assholes. Because I think that's a place, the mean voice in our brain, that's it's that's its top selling song is you're a lazy asshole. You fucked up. Your future is bleak because your past is horrible. That—that's essentially the default mode for the mean part of my brain. But um, I wanted to share that with you. But overall, I've been uh, doing—I'm doing okay. Uh, The consistent exercise is really helping. I'm completely off the mirtazapine now, and I think I've already lost about five pounds. So um, excited about that! I was at the limit of my biggest pants. That's a scary place to be. That is a scary place to be because then you got to go to the store and you got to buy new sizes. Oh, that is that is not a fun trip to make. I'm going to read a couple of surveys before we get to the um, conversation with Gladys. And Gladys is a, a pseudonym, uh, by the way. Um, this and, and by the way, Gladys uh, did some work in the... Um, in the sex industry and she doesn't currently work in it and uh, i believe she's the third guest that we've had on in the history of this show who uh, does sex work and uh, i've put it out there before but i would really like to talk to a male um who works in the sex industry or has worked in the sex industry you know um yeah anyway this is from the Shame and Se- no, uh, Struggle in a Sentence uh, survey filled out by a uh, soldier uh, who calls himself Joel. and um, He's in his 30s and about his depression. He writes, uh, it's rated at severe, um, isolated in the deepest, darkest hole. No matter how much you hear people are willing to help, they won't. Stuck doing this shit alone about his anxiety, struggling to get air, sweating my ass off, freaking out and thinking people are judging me hardcore. About his sex addiction, I try to avoid the funk of depression with sex or masturbation, but it never makes me feel good. And due to my meds, sometimes I don't, quote, finish, which creates really bad arguments after. Uh, Hopefully not after you're masturbating, because that would be a really unnecessary argument. Uh... OCD, uh, I have a high detail of organization and counting with certain things. PTSD, fucking thanks, army. Can't fucking sleep or function in public like I used to. I'm on edge way too much. Uh, anger issues, I have a short fuse. A big thing that will set me off is re- is repeating what I said. Um, snapshot from his life, I fucking failed at killing myself. Nothing makes you feel like a bigger piece of shit you know i I can understand how that's how the mean part of your brain would tell you that, but ask yourself, have you ever looked at somebody who attempted suicide and said to yourself that person's a piece of shit never, never once. I feel nothing but empathy for people who who do that i I hope that you can let some of people's compassion in for you, but I'm sure it's hard in the in the painful state that you're in right now. Um, Anyway, continuing with what he wrote, when I start feeling depression coming on, I tend to mask it with anger. After that, I beat myself up for allowing to get to this point. I'm then stuck in my personal hell. But he let people in. Let people in. And if the people that you're letting in are disappointing you, reach out to other people. Um, Okay, I I, I don't know what it's like going through what you're going through. I know a little bit of it, but um, I would be... I would be dead if I hadn't let people in my life. And I don't want to see you throw your life away. This was a same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Schrodinger's dog. He writes about his um, depression, wanting to die, shame for wanting to die, and shame for the shame of wanting to die. That's good. That's just good. Uh, alcoholism and drug addiction, whatever it is, please just give it to me. Oh, I was a garbage can too. I was a garbage can man. Um, racial cultural bias: too white for black people, too black for white people. Uh, snapshot from his life: Fuck! It's only eleven o'clock. This work is boring. Today will be boring. I'm boring. I've never had another girl. F- I'll never have another girlfriend. I'll never have sex again. It's probably better that way. I'm so fucking disgusting. I'm so lonely. I'm so horny. I need to do something. I'm too scared. I'm such a little bitch. Why does anyone put up with me? I'll never amount to anything. I don't have the will. I'm wasting my life away. My friends should be ashamed of me. My family should be ashamed of me. I should call my mom more. I should call my brother more. My brother's suffering too. I can't help my brother. I can't help myself. I'm in my head too much. Fuck, it's only eleven oh one. This work is boring. That was great. Thank you for that. No, I think I think a lot of people just went, wow, me too. Me too. And then this one is uh by a, a woman who calls herself a wolf and about her O C D. She writes, Having O C D is like having a song stuck in your head, but instead of La Bamba, you can't stop thinking about punching a baby. My God, somebody does what I've been doing. You're shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom. I will be high by four PM.
1: You feel helpless.
0: I will be in hell by four fifteen.
1: Prison was not easy. Reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, this intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. And I think I was 28 and that was the first time I ever experienced that and it was amazing.
0: I'm here with uh, Gladys, who... uh the the way our paths crossed, you had emailed me because a friend of yours um was starting either a blog or a podcast and she couldn't decide whether to do it anonymously or not. Correct. Uh she was, uh works in the uh adult industry. Mm-hmm. And um and you shared something about yourself too and
1: Yeah. Um yes. So um pretty much um very recently, I stopped escorting. Uh, well, actually, it wasn't that recently anymore. It was September two thousand
0: fourteen. Congratulations.
1: Um, yeah, it was. I mean, it, re- it really didn't get much out of it at the end of the day because, like, the loss and the gains kind of just like w- equal out in terms of like. I put a little money in my savings, but it wasn't like a huge money-making thing. And um, but anyway, so I had recent. I recently stopped escorting and um, have really been struggling to find a way to deal with that um, financially no 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 like um, mentally emotionally because like I had this really great setup where I was just putting everything in sort of a vault situation until compartmentalizing a later the, right yeah. yeah. Um, that was working great. And then it stopped working. (laughs) (laughs) Um, the
0: the lease on your compartment ran out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Lease was up. Um, and I just came to the point where I was like, okay, well I need to figure this out and like reach out to like a community of some sort. Um, and like when I first started, I had sort of been, there's like, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I think I'm just going off on a tangent. It's okay. Um, but there's basically like – when I started – well, I first started <laughs> – now I'm just going to where I started. Let's, I'd actually like
0: to start from the beginning, <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. beginning of of your – But I re- – long
1: story short, I reached out to you because I had stopped escorting and was looking for maybe a way to, to talk about that and a podcast seemed like a good idea and my friend had also been in the industry and – was interested in doing that.
0: And I thought some of the stuff that you shared with me was uh, interesting because you were at a, a, I think at that point, you were at a financial crossroads, but Mm -hmm. you decided you wanted to put it behind you. And you're Mm -hmm. also, uh, if I remember correctly, you're, uh, you emigrated here from Colombia?
1: Um, Close, kind of. Um, I was actually adopted um, as a baby from Paraguay. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> not quite it's emigrated. All, it's not quite all, I'm a white guy. It's, yeah, all, it's all the okay, same to fine. me, Gladys. Yeah, I know. It's, it's,
0: um, Yeah, I don't know how I got that all, all mixed up in it's my fine. brain. I smoked a lot of weed in my day.
1: Sure,
0: yeah. Um, so you were born here then?
1: I was born in Paraguay, but I was adopted when I was four months, so I, I was very, very young when I was adopted. Okay, it
0: was funny, because when, you, you, when we met uh, you know, five minutes ago, I was like, wow, she has no accent.
1: Oh, yeah, that would have been really amazing. I should have just said that I was born there and immigrated, oh, never mind, because yeah. then I would have been pulling off a really great accent.
0: But. Um, talk about your, your childhood. What was your childhood like? Where were you raised? Do uh, you have siblings?
1: Um, yes, I was raised in um well I was kind of my childhood was, was split in half um between um 0 to 9 I lived in uh Egan and then Eden Prairie, Minnesota. And then um when I was 9, we moved to Scottsdale, Arizona.
0: Did you oh boy, there's a switch. Did <laughs> yeah. you play did you play hockey when you were a kid? No,
1: I was oh. terrible at sports. I oh. tried all of them, but I really just got gymnastics and dance and singing and acting and all that stuff. But, no, I never did hockey. I should have.
0: So you moved to uh, Scottsdale. Huge mm-hmm. change of pace. Mm-hmm. And you were how old when you moved? Nine. Nine. It was, like, uh, the
1: worst age to move. You were, was, like, g- just about to hit puberty and, like, And, <laughs> and plus, I would
0: imagine you, you had built, uh, you know, a circle of friends yes, and yes. people got to know you and it felt like home. And then all of a sudden you get uprooted. What What was that like?
1: Um, That was really kind of, terrible and i really like resented my mom for a long time she's single um where was, and, you, where was your dad um so my mom is is a single mother she adopted me and I my see. sister as a single mother so she was never attached to a partner
0: okay
1: um she had she like previously had partners and then like when we were growing up she had boyfriends and stuff but um so wait what did right. you
0: the, the move to scottsdale yes, it was but very hard um, uh, and the total number of sibling uh, of kids I've, in your family um, you and your sister yeah
1: me and my sister and she's 20 she's younger than me okay she's a few years younger than me and um right so when i was three and a half my mom um took me back to paraguay on a trip and um to adopt my little sister who isn't like my biological sister but she wanted to get me a sister, like is how I like to think of it, um, and it was really amazing. Like because I don't know to be kind of like in second in charge to a little baby when you're like that young. I mean, not second in charge, but there was there were there's nannies. Little, yeah, yeah, you know, there's a little but, bit
0: of a of a power thing that yeah. the kid get. All of a sudden, you're not the baby.
1: Yeah, was, and you like that? I did. Um, I don't know. I think I spent a little more time trying to get attention from my mom after that. There was a lot of um, friction with like, in all of the home videos we have, it's me dancing in front of the camera and my sister like in the background. And I'm just <laughs> I'm like making up a song to dance. My, my mom's trying to like get my little baby sister in the frame. And I'm just like, yeah. Every so.
0: <laughs> every comedian that I know, that is what our home movies look like. Yeah. So you're not alone. It's really
1: really embarrassing to watch. Except my my songs are pretty solid. Um You singer? Yeah. I I thought I was when I was four. Um but yeah, so um She had a lot of problems at an early age. Um, Was that
0: the only time you went back to Paraguay was to adopt your sister? I went back
1: again when I was 13, but I really just couldn't appreciate it at that age. I don't think I kind of was not into being um, a person of color. I wanted to really be white for a long time, Um, and I was kind of in the thick of of I just want to be like everyone else and everyone else was not from Paraguay, so it was kind of like the wrong time to go, I think. But, um, yeah, that was the only other time I went.
0: Uh, you've never had any contact with your uh, biological
1: family? No, and actually the second time we went was to track down my lawyers um, who had arranged the adoption in Paraguay, but we couldn't find them in the phone book or anything. Um, and we we, like, hung out for a long time trying to figure out where they were, but it was, like really hard um so that was really kind of disappointing too um
0: i would imagine that had to be crushing
1: yeah (laughs) and also like to see how much the country had changed since i was 13 yeah or since i was like from age four to like age 13 when i was going back like the change was incredible like you remember it from
0: when you were four yeah wow most kids (laughs) don't have memories before uh
1: i remember like very well the country what like, do you what everything. do you remember about it um it was it was really nice like it it. we granted we were staying in like the white tourist area but like it was it was clean like it to i mean clean in the sense of like what santa monica is to like east hollywood or something like it was mm. clean um and what city were you? Um and it was asuncion which is the capital. Um and it was quite um beautiful and the people were very beautiful and kind and um I got looked after I was looked after by a number of people including like one of the um women who worked in the lobby and so like it was just like kind of a community feel right away which was cool. Um and then kind of, and then when we went back, it was, the city was so dirty, like it was filthy. And um, there were so many kids just wandering the streets, like selling candy and stuff.
0: And, and what politically had changed in the country be- between... Um,
1: the first and second time? First and second time. Um, the the uh, government had just completely gone totally like corrupt it's uh i don't know what it's like there but now but it's probably still not great um i don't specifically know what happened politically because it's never really been my forte in terms of like historical knowledge (laughs) um but yeah um it was so um that was kind of unsettling to see but again i was 13 and kind of was discounting the whole experience as it was happening. So it just like and how old didn't are you now? phase me much. I'm 26. I just okay. turned 26. Right. Happy birthday. Thank you. Gets a little less fun every year. <laughs> I
0: can tell you after 21, they all suck. Yeah. They all, you want, to, you want to take them all back. I was playing hockey. I was telling Gladys, I was just playing hockey about two hours ago. And I was just like, I hate being my age. Mm. I felt so slow out there. And I was like, I when I was in my 40s, all I could think about was I didn't have the energy I had when I was in my thirties. And so now I should just think to myself, appreciate the energy. What little energy you have now, because when you're playing in your sixties, you're gonna think, God, I wish I had the energy I had when I was in my fifties. That's true.
1: I what? it's hard. I don't know. I think I think that like it's totally possible to have a um like a rebirth when you're older, I think too. Like I think as our bodies decline though, like our minds are constantly um evolving. So I think that as an older person you have the advantage of having had the time to grow and like make your experience I don't know I don't know what I'm talking about. Yes you do. Yes you do. (laughs) I,
0: I I think you're I think you're right on track. The you know, the one thing that comes with with age and experience is that you um Get better at deciding what is important to you. When I was young, the, the number of things that I worried endlessly and needlessly about and caused myself emotional turmoil, mm-hmm. um which a lot of people do, you know, what other people think of you, you know, what my body looks like, you know, hating certain parts of my body and, mm-hmm. and thinking that they, you know, were uh, – way worse than they actually were you know like i look at a picture of myself now from when i was in my 20s and i was like i was a young Mm good-looking kid but then i was like oh i got a fucking gigantic head and my Mm. this is too fat and and we never i I hear people say that all the time that you look back at pictures of yourself when you were younger and and you feel kind of sad that you were so hard on yourself so
1: i still don't have that distance i still look back to like pictures of you when i was like young and i was like oh looking chunky there like really yeah i can't i can't like distance myself from do you have
0: struggles with uh Um, body dysmorphia or
1: yeah but i mean because there's like the
0: societal thing yeah that that fucks people up and then there is the like straight up it's a diagnosed
1: Mm -hmm.
0: warping of of perception
1: yeah where
0: would you put yours on on that scale
1: Um, I had a huge thing happen. Like, I had a huge issue with, um, I guess it was anorexia. It was kind of a combination combo deal. Like, it was anorexia to a certain extent and then quickly became just, like, exercise five hours a day or four and a half hours a day or something and eat whatever. And then it became, like, a weird vicious cycle where I just, like, eat a lot and then work out a lot and whatever um but before that that
0: that, that is that does fall under the guideline or the heading of eating disorder yeah
1: it was super bad and I mean when I my freshman year of college I lost maybe not 20 pounds but definitely like 15 pounds and I was at like 110 or 109 or 110 which like for my body frame I just looked disgusting like i looked bony and unhealthy, and I was constantly getting like attempt interventions by my roommates and stuff. And I just at that point just couldn't acknowledge that I had a problem, but I knew I did. Like I like because I was eating. Well, I think I r- really knew I had a problem when I went to the hospital for it, but it wasn't actually for like. The eating just it wasn't because I was like so malnourished that I was fainting or something it was because I was taking these diet pills and they made my heart beat really fast and I thought I was having a heart attack one night um so my roommate or no I didn't tell anyone that was like the freaky part too is like I didn't tell anyone I was like freaking out and I thought I was having a heart attack and I just like called 911 and like dealt with it myself I think that's what happened no I think I called a cab and they took me to the hospital, but yeah, it was still scary. You called a
0: cab, but the cab driver was pre-med, so it was kind of a half-ambulance.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, hopefully, I, I hope he was. Um, no, that was a weird, that was a weird situation, but that also kind of made me realize, yeah, maybe I should think about um, recovery. Um,
0: and so what did you do?
1: Um, well, I was in my first semester of school, and I was doing really well, Um and I didn't want to take any time off, so I just decided we had this really obscenely long winter break. It was like five weeks or something, Um, so uh, I just spent that whole time kind of like I don't know. I I really spent a lot of time meditating and um, writing my feelings down and just like being really cautious not to limit myself. And it was, I don't exactly know how I did it, but I somehow managed to like, so I somehow managed to reverse it by the time I got to my second semester. So you,
0: bro- you broke out of the cycle of uh, Anorexia. Gor- gorging and uh, ex- ex- excessive exercise?
1: No, I, I stopped being like anorexic and then started overeating and overexercising oh, so I it was like i, 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 I didn't you quite we, recover but i did we kind ca- of we yeah. call
0: that switching deck chairs on the titanic
1: yeah, yeah. did one of those switcheroo's so um yeah that was
0: where fun. are you at with it today with uh um, any kind of eating disorder
1: i never was pro- like properly diagnosed or talked about it um to anyone except my friends or people who had also struggled with it. Um, So, I mean, it's... First of all, I'm just too old to have it. (laughs) Like, it's just... I should have grown out of it.
0: No, that's... Um, that's, Erase that from your mind. (laughs) Um, There are people in their 60s and 70s that have eating disorders that are every bit as serious as uh, a kid that's 14 years old. Right. It has nothing to do with age.
1: Right. I think the difference is that... Before, it was just the eating disorder, and now it's—I don't generally have a problem with it, but if there's something in my life that's stressing me out and I feel like I need control um, over something and that ends up being my diet, then that, like, something will trigger it, and I'll maybe have, like, a two- or three-month bad period, but for the most part, I steer clear.
0: And it's no longer the restricting of food. It's the— Uh, overeating and compulsively exercising or both
1: um i mean it's not it's not nearly as bad as it was before like it's it's a very tiny fraction of what it acts like so i don't even think it could be called an eating disorder at this point it's just like disordered eating which is like another way to 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 phrase because um i've read a lot of books on the subject and um there's this thing that they say that really like hits home with me in all aspects of my life, which is like if the intent if the feeling that you're having when you're when you're eating any amount of food, whether it's a small amount or a huge amount, if your feeling is is of anxiety and of um, like disgust with yourself and stuff um, and you feel like you're overfeeding yourself, that's still considered a binge even though you may have only eaten 200 calories. So because like the feeling, the feeling is still the same. So I think it's like that with, um, I mean, even, I mean, with any kind of like self-medicating or anything, like, even if it's not alcoholism, like the feeling of, oh, I shouldn't be drinking right now, but I'm drinking anyway, like is still present. So it's like, yeah, what you're doing is unhealthy, even though you can justify it. I don't know
0: that that makes sense i i agree it's it I think it's the same thing with with um trauma mm-hmm. you know people want to categorize it it's gotta it's gotta reach this certain level for it to officially become trauma, mm-hmm. and it's like no, what matters is what you're feeling yeah that's that's the most important thing, yeah, and what are you gonna do with those feelings? are you gonna process them in a way that's healthy or are you gonna run from them by numbing out with right. with something yeah um so you moved to Scottsdale uh, when you, <laughs> you were thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um give me some seminal moments from uh from childhood, things that were um difficult, awesome, uh changed who you were, for some w- weird reason stick out in your mind and anything anything you want to share? Um
1: well when I I really have been thinking about this the past week or so and I don't really like to stew on my past just because it feels self-centered. Well, you picked dumb. the wrong show. <laughs> but I, I really have been forcing myself to think about it a lot, um, and I, I kind of realized that my life was amazing and my childhood was truly a childhood before I moved to, to Scottsdale, and then after that, it just didn't. It felt just like torture until I turned eighteen, um, and. Could it have been like the onset of puberty? Possibly. But I wasn't like immediately into it when I moved. It was almost entirely the fact that I the the people that I surrounded myself with were so negative when I moved here. And it it wasn't because I intentionally surrounded myself with these people. It was because I was in a fourth grade class with like 20 other kids and these were the people that I had to spend my time with. Um, so it was a very toxic environment for me in terms of... Um, were they
0: materialistic?
1: They were very materialistic. Um, to give you an idea, like the woman who wrote Twilight went to my high school. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, it uh, it was very much... Scottsdale is very much the Beverly Hills of Phoenix slash Arizona. It's extremely obnoxious um and we were not rich at all we were definitely we were middle class up until i was in high school and then we were definitely Mm -hmm. lower middle
0: you know i had a similar experience in grade school it was a very small grade school it was it was catholic and um i was popular there and and there was almost no materialism Mm -hmm. amongst my peers and then i went to a high school that my town shared with a super wealthy mm-hmm. suburb next door, and all of a sudden, my group of new friends, because all of my old friends went to the Catholic high school, and oh. I was like, "I've had enough of this Catholic bullshit." Mm-hmm. Um, they were incredibly materialistic, mm-hmm. and it was all about you know the most expensive stereo and the most expensive car. And mm-hmm. I just I remember feeling like a certain amount of sadness, like, yeah. "Oh, this is this is not healthy," but. No. You're not going to change them, and right. it's you know I liked them. Other than that, but mm-hmm. it was it was always um, it it kind of sucks being yeah. around kids that are materialistic. But uh, go ahead, I just uh,
1: um oh no, that was definitely exactly what happened with me too. Except I, unlike you, I don't think I had the wherewithal to remove myself from the situation and see that um, it was these were not the people that I should try be trying to um, make friends with because they were just not worth my time. Um, I don't think I, I could have seen that at my, I don't know. Like anyway, um, so, uh, yeah, it was, it was a huge change. I think particularly because there were only two other kids of color in my elementary school and one was an Indian boy and one was like a very beautiful Asian girl. And I kind of, so I was like, Basically, the darkest. I mean, the Indian kid was dark, but you know, he was very smart. <laughs> yeah, you know, he was like very smart and popular and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as the new kid, and it was brown, and so this made all sorts of questions.
0: That's kind of shocking in Phoenix. I would, I would think no, that there's yeah. a lot more uh, Latinos. In- it's
1: just Scottsdale. It's Phoenix is is extremely diverse, but Scottsdale is 20 miles away, and it's I think 95 percent white. Really? Yeah, it's really white. Um, I think it's changed a little now, but um, so that was tough. So you, f-
0: you felt like you stuck out?
1: Yeah, and not only that, because I kind of just had like a carefree, like, I'm a kid attitude, and everyone was trying so hard to be little adults already, and what? I wasn't wearing the right clothes. and
0: Was there a lot of academic pressure on kids and uh
1: not in elementary school. That didn't really hit until middle school. Then I really felt it. I really could tell everyone around me was trying to go to Ivy Leagues, and I was like, oh, this yeah, is that's not my I, game." That's what I felt in high school. <laughs> I'm just I was step out of this race. I,
0: I, I felt um, smart until I got to my high school, and yeah. I was like, "Oh my god!"
1: Yeah, I just kept my head down. I was like, "I'm just gonna gun through this." Um, it was yeah. So I didn't feel academic pressure. In elementary school, but there was so much racism, and I had not encountered that at all up to that point. Um, so it was just startling to me, and it was also
0: uh, racism directed at you. Yes. Okay. Like, like, give me some snapshots.
1: Um, like the only Mexicans I know are ones that mow my lawn. And um, are you Mexican? You must be Mexican. You're brown. Um, so that must mean you're Mexican, and I would try to explain where I was from, and they just, like, didn't have any interest.
0: They probably didn't even know where your country was. No,
1: not really. Um, so, and or then, like, are you black? And, oh, and then I remember in, my, in fifth grade, when I finally made an effort, or I made this huge effort to, like, transform myself between fourth and fifth grade, so I could to have friends, and because <laughs> I had one friend in fourth grade, and... Everyone else treated me like a freak. Um, so in fifth grade, I was finally hanging out with some of the popular kids. And one of them told me, we we didn't hang out with you because we thought you were Mexican. But now we know you're from Paraguay. And I was like, w- what does that even mean? Like, wh- what's the differentiation? It was just so stupid. Um, so, yeah, I kind of just immediately jumped into wanting to be popular and well-liked, and did kind of whatever I needed to do to change about myself so I could fit in, in with the, that crowd.
0: You know, another great episode uh, for that type of subject uh, on this podcast is the one with, um, God, why am I blanking, uh, Loren Sulla. Uh, She t- She was a cheerleader, and she talked about just compromising who she was Mm -hmm. to fit in in high school and and really kind of hating herself Mm -hmm. uh, for that does does that kind of ring true
1: yeah i mean i don't think i hated myself for that i think i was so deeply enmeshed in this culture of of um of standards like there were just so many standards for everything um especially beauty and i found that I just wanted to be more than anything, just be like beautiful and beautiful was white. So I spent so much time just like hating myself because I wasn't Uh, white.
0: That's so heartbreaking to hear.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it was it was rough. Like I went through my journals one time and there was this section for dreams and like, what's your dream? And it was like, I want to be blonde and have long blonde hair and fair skin and something else stupid like a Corvette or something dumb <laughs> <laughs> um
0: what do you what do you think and feel as you hear yourself share that now
1: oh uh, it just sounds stupid but it was back then it was like that was a huge thing for me to just like hate myself so much um and something that I just intrinsically could not change um
0: but today do you feel like that's completely gone from you The design? oh yeah okay yeah I've
1: no at, desire whatsoever. At be white.
0: What, easy now. I'm white. <laughs> um, at what age do you feel like you let go of that um, wishing you didn't look the way you do?
1: Probably when I was, went to college. It took a long time because high school was not was no more self esteem boosting. Like I would always get. The bit parts in the plays, even though I had a better singing voice than some of the other girls that were auditioning because people were playing favorites. So just like I was never happy in high school, really, um, either in any way. So,
0: Any uh, snapshots from uh, grade school or high school you want to share?
1: Yeah, so uh, (laughs) this is really okay. Um, So um, in sixth grade, I... Okay. Well, first of all, I was put on medication when I was ten um, for ADHD. Um, what did they give you? Adderall. Mm-hmm. And did you like it? Yes, it, it has served me very well over the years. Um, and I'm glad I was medicated at that age because I was already dealing with so much shit that it would be like immensely more difficult to have to like teach myself to sit still in class in addition to everything else I had to deal with. Um, But so I started, I don't remember how it started, but I middle school was terrible for me. Like I have blocked out almost all of it, Um, which is really weird. Like I literally just can't remember parts of that part of my life. Um, But so sixth grade, I started pulling out my hair and I don't even remember where it started or, like, how, um, but it was bad. Like, I had these huge bald spots, and my mom would, like, I finally broke down and told my mom about it, and she was really helpful, um, but at the same time, it I didn't know what was causing it. It was obviously anxiety, um, and I think I was actually at the time on an anti. Anxiety or antidepressant as well, but it just obviously wasn't working, and it took a long time to readjust my meds so that I just stopped, like ticking, and um, yeah. So, but then so after the meds
0: the meds helped with the trichotillomania.
1: Yeah, um, but literally after that happened, like I never had any problem with it again. So I think it was maybe just the pressure of going into middle school that really triggered something awful
0: (laughs) you know it's amazing the ways that we cope um (laughs) it's just amazing the ways we cope yeah we pull our hair out you know we make ourselves throw up we compulsively exercise yeah you know we gamble (laughs) it's just the list goes on and on it's it's unbelievable
1: yeah and especially when you're that young to already be feeling so much anxiety it's like i should have had time to just be a kid you know
0: and when from the description of your the the new town that you were in it makes total sense to me yeah those those are pressure cookers the 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 upper middle class lily white suburbs um are
1: terrible and
0: and you know there's one in in chicago that that psychologists call the suicide belt because so many kids kill themselves Wow. Uh, up there, yeah. I went to college with a couple of people from up there, and they just could not relax. They're yeah. just, you know, the knees always bouncing and the uh, hair know,
1: trigger. Yeah, yeah.
0: just. Um, but go ahead. So, um, yeah. the trichotillomania. Any other snapshots?
1: <laughs> That's a great snapshot. My snapshots are so depressing. I wish you could come up with a, a fun one. Um, let's see, high school. I, um, oh, I can give you a snapshot. This is really, we're just going into, like, the worst parts of my life right now. But, um, so when I was 14, I came out as bi, and I didn't, um, really know exactly what that meant, but I was kind of, like, pretty sure that I I liked women. And I, there was this girl who was the lead in the school play, And um, she was, like, amazing. And she was 18, I was 14, so, like, she seemed like a complete grown-up to me. And I felt like I still had braces and stuff. Um, So I immediately just started idolizing this person who I didn't know. And, like, we were in the musical together. So, like, we had interaction then, but it wasn't like I knew her at all. It was very upsetting. Like, it was just weird that I would be so infatuated with someone who'd, like, barely knew me, um, but at the time, like, I was really idealizing the idea of, like, being in love and having a soulmate, and this was, like, my first, like, real feeling for someone else, so I kind of went, like, crazy with it, literally the entire school year, that's, that was my whole freshman year of, of high school, was, like, being obsessed with her, and, um, the and I got like a C in algebra because all I was doing is like scribbling notes. It was ridiculous. Um, but and then so she's going off to college at the end of um. duh, yeah, she was going off to college. She's graduating. Um, but she's going in a diff- two different state, so I wasn't gonna see her anymore. And um, I decided to write her a letter saying how I felt and whatever. Even though it was the stupidest idea ever. She had a boyfriend of two years. And she was super Catholic and, like, sang in her church choir. Um, uh, Boyfriend ended up coming out as gay. And she ended up coming out as somewhat gay. So go 14-year-old me for figuring that one out.
0: How did she react to your letter?
1: She was really nice and supportive and, like, super cool about it. And after that, like, we started, like, instant messaging throughout high school. And she'd, like, like, give me tips on studying or like boys or whatever and it we ended up having like a pretty good friendship but that later collapsed when one year ago we reconnected and it was awful it was like the worst experience ever it wasn't the worst experience ever that was a huge overstatement because it was like we we were meeting up after all these years it was like 10 years later um and she, and, like, the facade of what I thought she was just, like, shattered completely because she ended up being, like, this, so, like, hugely manipulative narcissist Um to the point where, like, we're still talking and I don't want her in my life because, like, she just will constantly, like, three months will go by and then she'll text me and be like, hey, like, she needs to be, she needs to have attention on her and people in her life who want her and can't have her and stuff. It was just a terrible experience, but... um Yeah, so I just, from day one, had, like, started out with really toxic romantic relationships. Um, Yeah, since high school snapshot. But the rest of high school was pretty uneventful. I didn't do much.
0: (laughs) What's the the next eventful thing in your your life?
1: Um, Definitely college. It was, this would be when I would circle back to the eating disorder thing, um, which was my freshman year of college. And um after after that I think the biggest thing that happened in college was just extreme extreme depression. Um I kind of there were long periods of time where I just didn't talk to people. Um had
0: a girl. <laughs>
1: yeah. But um You're doing it right. Yeah, but I would just shut myself off from the world and just feel bad for myself for long stretches of time. Um, that actually kind of peaked in my senior year of college because I had like half the, the, the course schedule that I had years prior. So I had all of this free time and I was working on my senior thesis, but it was still kind of just empty time. Um, and yeah, I think the whole, I don't know. I, I was at a very small liberal arts school, and it was kind of just like high school part two, a little bit, with a lot cooler people. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but. What were you studying? I was studying theater, and I really. The thing was, I moved to LA, like wanting to act, and. Uh, not moved to L.A., but, like, I started school thinking that I was going to, like, drop out and become an, a full-time actress, like, two years in or whatever. I had really stupid plans. But um You're
0: so hard on yourself. <laughs> you are so hard on yourself. Well, I
1: don't know. Like, that seems so implausible. It's just, like, move out here and just, like, drop out of school and become an actress. Who am
0: just, I to have a dream? I don't know. Dumb me. Well,
1: it was another dream quickly shattered situation when I got here and kind of just started going out on auditions and just realizing how much of it was based on what I looked like and it was just the same shit again which is like being stereotyped and I just wasn't all about it Um, and I still am not all about it and I, I also realized that writing is my stronger suit so I decided to just stick to that and become one of two playwrights in the theater department instead of One of forty-eight actors, or whatever. It was a very small theater department. Um, But yeah, so it was just—it was really disheartening, I think, coming here. But
0: what did what did it feel like the first time you heard your words performed?
1: Um, it was amazing. Like that was probably that was the best part of college. Was kind of being able to showcase my work and being like the star writer of the theater department was yeah, really been cool. awesome. yeah it was nice i mean it was short-lived and probably ill conceived on my part i don't think i was quite as good of a writer as i thought i was but um yeah it, it was that was kind of the first real validation i felt because um, i mean i graduated with a like a 3.8 in high school or something which is just like nothing compared to the weighted grades which were like 4.5 or something so I never really felt like graduating with that GPA was a big deal and then college I didn't have a great GPA but I had written this play that got honors so it was like yeah like really the first taste of validation I had and kind of made me think well maybe I could actually do this for a living um writing and, um, yeah, but, um, at the same time I had, I had that confirmation, but then I also had the confirmation that the city is kind of like a cesspool of hate and like terrible people <laughs> sometimes. Um, so
0: I think it depends on the circles that, does. You, that you seek out, yeah. um, because there are circles of awesome, supportive, down to earth people yeah, right yeah. alongside manipulative, materialistic...
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: ...sociopaths.
1: Right. And, yeah, I think... I was just kind of not sure what I wanted to do, so I went... After I graduated, I went back home for a year. And, um... I mean, there's a snapshot there, but I don't really know if it's relevant or, like... It's a little distant at this point. Um... But... Share it. Yeah, okay, um... So when I got home, I think I'm leaving out a huge part part of my whole childhood, which was that um, my sister's um has a learning my sister has a learning disability, and um growing up was really really difficult um, she for we, her or for you for all of us um she was really violent at an early age and she would throw these tantrums where she would just scream and cry and kick and like hit people and we would have to like hold her down in public spaces and just oh like my God. just like wait it out and sometimes it'd be like an hour and we were like in the school parking lot just like trying oh, to get my sister wow. to calm down um this went on like up until high school um and that kind of was i mean she was ultimately like she she turned out okay but well (laughs) that's a whole other thing but um it was really tough like when she was going through puberty it was like everything was like extreme and I remember my mom would always have me videotape when my sister threw tantrums or whatever they're called when she had like an episode and they would often consist of just my sister just like throwing things at my mom and um sometimes she would have like a weapon like sometimes she'd have like a knife and she would be trying to cut my mom and sometimes it would be like um like like scratching or it was just very was it a very unsettling thing was it was it
0: a uh like a chemical imbalance or did something yeah. traumatic happen to her emotionally or um what? well
1: it's been determined she has like fetal alcohol syndrome and she also she was the last of nine children and they were all so i don't know her her mom was most likely on drugs like when she conceived most of her children yeah. so she who knows exactly what is chemically mm-hmm. going on there but yeah it was really bad um and it took a long time to get her med stabilized, too, because she kept getting misdiagnosed. Um, so that was just like a constant thing in my life. And I always felt like I really had to be the normal one in, in the family because... I like
0: how you were just going to skip over this. <laughs> I know. Like, this isn't important. No, I
1: was like, I should probably go back to that. Um yeah, um, I, I really felt oh, like... Oh, and then
0: there's that thing where I felt like I had to be the parent, and my <laughs> sister was dangerously violent.
1: Yeah, a little bit. Um, that kind of sucked, because when I was at school, I was not happy, and I wanted kind of a safe haven to go to when I went home. That was just never possible. Like There would always be my sister would be having a tantrum. Sometimes there was quiet, but it was often the quiet before the storm. And... Um so yeah it was not
0: you didn't have a safe place.
1: Ideal. Yeah, I didn't really feel like I had a safe place. I mean my room was was very safe, but I could only lock myself in there for so long before my mom was like she's like starting her tantrum again or whatever. But um I'm really kind of rationalizing this a lot as I'm saying it. Like it was a really traumatic experience. Um, especially the times when my mom's life was literally in danger and we called the police and my sister was like holding her at knife point. Like wow. shit got real and that was extremely hard for me to deal with and, and she I, was
0: two years younger than you? Four. Four. Okay.
1: Um that was terrible. And there was another time where she Threatened to, she's tried to commit suicide so many times. And the first time, I think the biggest time was when she was 12 or 13, and we were staying in a hotel in Minnesota, and there was like some sort of a window situation where you could, you could like put your hand out the second floor window, and then she found a way to like lift it all the way up. And so she was like standing on the balcony and gonna jump. And that was really scary too. Um, it kind of always I always kind of just felt like everything was going to be a crisis, like things were going to be um like you could never rocky. relax. Yeah, so it's always kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, I guess. Um, when some when things were going well. Um, so I think maybe that influenced my view of life and, and and stuff in terms of like I have to survive and not I'm I'm living I'm surviving and maybe constantly.
0: Peace and happiness aren't just meant for, just aren't meant for me.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: If something good does happen, it it's fleeting. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, but I don't. But I don't think my mom was meaning to put any unnecessary stress or anything on me. I think it just we didn't have any help and we had to deal with my yeah. sister and I mean we just had to do it. So I don't think it was. I, I mean, I wasn't required to help out, but it's, like, when, when that was going on, there's no way I was just going to sit by and, like, put my mom in danger or something. So, um, and it wasn't always that bad. Like, we had good times as fa- as a family, too, but overwhelmingly it was not great. Um, but, yeah, that's why theater was cool because I could, you know, I could stay after school and then we'd have rehearsal till 6 or 7 and I could just, like, chill with people and not have to think about home stuff. But yeah, it was um it was fairly traumatic, I guess. Um but I know people who've had like way worse it childhood- childhoods. It doesn't matter. It
0: doesn't matter. It's the combination of of all of that stuff. Yeah. That's one of the worst things we can do is compare you know, well, they coped with it. You know what happened to them on paper wasn't as bad. That's like one of the worst traps we can we can fall into. It. Yeah. It kept me from healing around certain topics for decades, mm-hmm. decades. Yeah. So I, I can't say it enough on this podcast. To your feelings are valid. Mm-hmm. They are valid.
1: Word. Um. Um. This is kind of just bouncing around, but um, I do think that there was a lot of times when my feelings were invalidated recently, and, and it was it was by my mother. And, and so it was kind of like um, a rem- maybe a reminder or like an indication that perhaps in the past she had also been invalidating my feelings and not realizing that she was. Um, mostly because she kind of, she doesn't want me to say I have a mental illness and she doesn't like the word or the phrase or the idea of it being a mental illness. Um, she likes to think of it like more as a condition or, um, something that outside, um, sources are causing. It's circumstantial. To us. Right. And so when I try to explain to her, like on the phone that I'm, just depressed she's like well i can understand why you're depressed and then she'll list all the reasons and i'm like no it's not that it's i just you know want to kill myself um which doesn't i don't actually ever really want to kill myself but like you know i have
0: you don't want to be alive i
1: sometimes voice that that and not realize what the actual intent of what i'm saying is it's just a feeling that i have it's just like yeah i don't want to be on this at this moment Um, so, uh, yeah, so she would, she's just constantly been not wanting to acknowledge the fact that I actually am like that. I have a, an an illness and like, I'm going to have to deal with the the rest of my life. So that's just something I was thinking about. I don't know. I think that's important.
0: I think that's important. Yeah. It's probably terrifying to your mom. On top of your sister having issues, you know, the yeah. idea that you may have something that's beyond um, her control. Yeah, is probably terrifying to her.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm sure, and I know that she really tries to not um, put unnecessary pressure on me. But every time I go home, I constantly resume. I resume my uh, assume my role as the kind of you know like when you have an Oreo and you break it apart and then you like lick off the frosting and then you put it back together that's like the frosting is me and then my sister and my mom are the cookies and I just feel like I'm barely holding them together but and I'm constantly having like the threat of like them tearing apart again so it's just like so are a you lot saying
0: of, you cause diabetes yes is that what you're saying
1: yes absolutely 100% <laughs>
0: Uh that's pretty profound. That's uh that's um that's quite an image. And that makes that makes sense <laughs> to me. Uh, you know, I I relate very much because my my brother um was high maintenance as a kid mm-hmm. and um lots of fights between him and and my mom. And my mode from I remember at an early age I just remember thinking whatever no matter what happens around me i'm not going to cause a problem mm-hmm. i'm i'm going to be the good kid yeah and that had bad re- repercussions you know in some yeah. ways it was good but in in a lot of ways i didn't learn how to confront i didn't learn how to set boundaries i didn't yeah. learn how to feel i didn't learn how to you know, identify my needs and, and on mm-hmm. and on and on. Do any of those ring true for you? Yes,
1: all of them. Yeah,
0: yes, and who wouldn't be depressed much. when your your view of the world is that it's this thing to be endured um, rather than this thing that you can thrive in?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, and I also kind of think that I'm genetically just wired, because actually it's interesting because my mom says the same thing that she says about mental illness. That she says about my sexuality, which is that well, you didn't have a male figure growing up, and that it that means that's part of the reason why you don't you can't trust men. It's because like you know you haven't had a good man in your life growing up, and it's like no, I think I was just hardwired to like generally mostly prefer women, like I think that's just like I knew that when I was like six, um, but my mom kind of always wants to put like nurture over nature and i think a lot of depression well at least my depression feels nature like it feels like it's kind of always been there and was dormant until it wasn't Mm -hmm. dormant um but i definitely think that environmental factors affected me in ways that Mm i maybe didn't or haven't like examined Mm -hmm. as an adult but
0: uh have you oops Hold on one second. Our thing just made weird sounds. Hello, hello. Check. Check. Our audio just had a little glitch. Um, So, what's the next big portion of your life or seminal moment or issue?
1: Um. So I, sometime in college, I think. I don't remember when my first job was. Well, when I lost all the weight for, when, not for my eating disorder, when I had the the really bad eating disorder my freshman year, I lost a lot of weight, and I started doing modeling because it was an extra way to, to make money, um, and I was, like, the right size for it. Um, so I started doing that, and then I put on weight after I recovered, and I wasn't a viable candidate to do, like, Regular modeling, which isn't to say, like, I was fat. It was just to say, like, I wasn't a side zero. You were
0: emaciated. <laughs>
1: yeah. So I couldn't do the catalog stuff. Um, and But this was really – it was really kind of fun and a great way to escape school and whatever. Um, so I started looking for kind of alt-modeling jobs, which are usually, like um, – a lot of like burlesque type, um, like their suicide girls were huge for a while, and people were doing were copying that style of like tattooed up girls, um, and and like the glamour modeling, uh, glamour nudes somehow became really popular between like 2007 and 2009, and so I started um considering doing that, and um, one summer. I really wanted to go to San Francisco, like, really badly. And
0: and you were living where at this point?
1: Um, I was going to school in L.A. and living in the dorms. Okay. Um,
0: what school did you go to?
1: Occidental. Okay. Um, and so I, I really wanted to go be with this person who lived in San Francisco. And um, in order to do that, I would need to have, like, a large nest egg situation um you
0: wanted to go live with this person
1: um i was gonna like visit. rent an apartment there and like get a job and be there for a few months over the summer was
0: this uh, somebody who you were rom- romantically or yes. platon- okay
1: um well at that point we were just platonic because she had a girlfriend but we were definitely like we're, she was up until recently like probably my best friend so she it, it all worked out well but at the time it was like romantic mm. Um, and anyway, I don't think that was really relevant, but whatever. Um, she, so, or me, (laughs) um, I decided to take a few of the glamour modeling gigs and they paid okay, but I needed to make more. Um, so I decided to just like do something crazy and spontaneous and, um, do a porn shoot um, but I had all these rules for myself in place, which was no on-screen penetration, and I wasn't going to do anything without production, and I just had, like, all these rules in place, so I thought everything would be okay because I have these control variables and um, things are going to be fine. Um, and the way porn works is you get sucked in and they say, oh, it's just a paid audition, and... So you do that and then like halfway through the shoot, they're like, well, if you do this, you know, you'll make like a grand, like we'll, we'll pay you a grant in addition to the 300 we paid you for the audition. And then it becomes like, oh, so you're doing a little more than you had told yourself you're going to do. And then it becomes like, oh, this is nice. I just made $1,300. I've never made that much on a shoot, but that was an example of in my fantasy what I look back on and think my... Days were like, um, so I did that and it was really shitty. Like, the experience just I felt awful afterwards, and I didn't feel like I had done it for like the right reasons. Um, which was no reason. It was, I was
0: gonna say, what, what
1: it was spontaneous, but it was also because I really needed the money and I. I wanted to move, like, I wanted to leave from school to go directly to San Francisco, so um, I wasn't going to be able to go home at all, so I had to, like, get all my stuff together. Um,
0: Have you seen the uh, documentary Hot Girls Wanted?
1: No, I've seen it on Netflix. I have a lot of issues with, like, documentaries about sex workers, so it's... I haven't watched that one yet, but...
0: Well, it's it's mostly about girls that have just turned 18 and how they're, they're um, highly in demand be- mm-hmm. because they haven't done anything yet, but right. as soon as they do something, their value goes down because they're no longer first-timers right. doing this. And But they've put all their eggs into this basket now. They're living away from home, so they wind up having to take these degrading jobs mm-hmm. to keep... Doing this thing that they thought was a good idea, and mm-hmm. it's it is really hard to watch. Mm-hmm. But I think it should it should be required viewing for every person, male and female, that turns eighteen, because mm-hmm. uh, it bursts a lot of the bubbles that yeah. people have about um, the that line of work being glamorous.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, actually. Now that I'm thinking back, I don't know if I felt so terrible about that first job. I think I did. I think I was kind of riding on the thrill of making that much money in one in like an hour. Um
0: And what if you don't mind me asking, what was it that you said you weren't going to do that you did Decided. to do? I mean, I do? actually
1: didn't really do a whole lot. Like I I never had sex on on screen. Like I haven't ever done that. Um but it was just kind of like a lot of just weird like like, I I just wasn't, I was just acting like I was literally just a different person. And so I was not um, okay with the part about me just completely transforming myself into this different person. So I could make a certain amount of money and feel weird about it afterwards
0: in what way did you have to transform yourself into somebody who was enjoying what they were doing
1: yeah i mean i mean just um in terms i mean i came from an acting perspective so i treated it like i established this new identity and you know they ask you questions about yourself and you have to have answers ready um so i kind of decided on what my backstory was before i got in there and um came
0: up with stuff that you thought they would want to hear.
1: Yeah. And um, just like was not my like any version of myself, so that was unsettling to me, I think, too, that I could somehow just like become this
0: did you have a little voice in person. your mind as you were doing it saying, "What are you doing?
1: I guess I mean, not really, actually, like I kind of just like was in character. I'm <laughs> a very method actress, um. It wasn't until really after that I kind of when I had to like sit and think about the day that I'd had that I was kind of just like, this is probably not a good idea. Um, But anyway, but that was an isolated thing and I didn't really do any um, porn again until my scene. Well, I, I was doing like nude modeling, but nude modeling is very different. Like, I mean, I've learned bad and good situations with that as well but it's much safer and um i mean then porn porn is I whatever i mean it really depends if if you know the person who's the producer or whatever i mean i think you can have a safe experience as like a newcomer in porn but um it's not particularly safe in terms of you're just driving up to this random location and taking off your clothes in front of someone you. You don't even know sometimes. Like, that
0: sounds terrifying.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and so that's not exactly safe. Ter- but like when you're working with a photographer, you like have the authority to ask them more questions and it feels like you're screening them a little bit as well. And I liked that experience. Um, also, it was just fun. Like I didn't ever usually get copies of the pictures, so I didn't have to like obsess over myself. I could just like have fun for a couple hours and sometimes work with other models and um, I highly recommend nude modeling to all <laughs> younger people um who are interested in that line of work but don't want to go through hell. Um that's a fun way to kind of so you explore found it, your boundaries. You found it
0: to be uh, empowering and liberating. Yeah,
1: that was yeah, it was great. Um but so I did some of that and, and then I didn't do porn again until my senior year of college where I was in a similar situation where I needed to make money in order to get an apartment here. And I didn't have a job yet so I needed to like make money Um, and then I did another shoot and it wasn't with anyone that I knew but it was with people that I had done a lot of research on beforehand because I Mm -hmm. didn't want the same situation as I had last time which was just like a total feeling of like like after I shot like it was completely out of my hands like I don't know what they did with it Um, so i went to someone like a company that actually had like their own website and i was going to be like one of the girls on the website um in a featured video for that week so i was they weren't going to like leave it up i mean they were going to leave it up but like i wasn't going to be featured for that long so i didn't feel that my identity safety was compromised um and It's weird because I never like cared about my identity being compromised like or me being found out in terms of nude modeling just because like I maybe just because I knew that even though people could have their own assumptions the only thing that was happening on that shoot was just like hanging out naked whereas with porn it was like this is like definitely a clear um, case of this girl doing this terrible thing. So it's like whatever. Um, and so the second you're shoot you're talking
0: about in your, in your own opinion, that it's a terrible thing or in terms of, w- in what? terms of
1: other people's judgment, okay. other p- societies, society deems porn still as like, not great. <laughs> um, and I, at, at this point, I still, I have that opinion too. Like, it's terrible. Um, and, uh, so yeah, my second shoot was just like. I kind of agreed to what I what we were going to do beforehand. And um, but this site was like way more known. So like the <clears throat> I was like filled with anxiety about someone finding my video, finding the video. And that made the that seems a little... like
0: a bad combination, yeah. you know, getting, getting into it, hoping that it never gets seen. Right. I, I know people that do that with. With pilots, yeah, that, that'll be like, yeah, I'll do this pilot, but it's a piece of shit. I'll yeah. make a nice chunk of money, and thank thank God, it's it's never right. gonna get and picked it'll up. It'll
1: be put in a storage unit somewhere. Um, there's
0: one guy I know who actually cracked a bottle of champagne when he heard the pilot didn't get picked up because oh, it was it wow. was <laughs> so exciting. Yeah. Oh no. Um, but go ahead.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I don't know about my performance. Maybe it was good. Like maybe it would have been something I'd have been proud of later. But I just didn't want any like to do with it after it was done
0: so are you saying that your performance in it could have changed it from something that you were ashamed of into something that you were not ashamed of
1: possibly i mean i think if i was in a position where i was um if i knew what i knew now that i knew then and i was in that same terrible position that i would have made so many more changes to the way i approached um getting work in the industry how oh, so um in terms of knowing like what my rights were as as a performer and like doing background checks on people and um really researching the, the people i was working with um which actually is the background check thing but m- more so just understanding what i was getting into um
0: and where you could speak up
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and i didn't feel If I didn't feel powerless, I think it would have been a positive experience probably. But again, with um, the machine of it all, um, ultimately at the end of the day when you're 25 and you're just like spit out, it's a terrible feeling for young women who have no previous job experience um, other than porn and like are thrown into the world, expected to just find a job that's okay with you having had four or five years as a porn star um so i don't think ultimately it's a great industry um but also the state of society just doesn't really accept porn performers as um real people so um i would say
0: uh, all sex workers in general yeah they, i mean if you look at the way the cops treat crimes against mm-hmm. sex workers it's horrifying
1: yeah um, I think my the point of that story was that um I did that and I ended up not being able to stay in LA, so I went home for a year and then I moved back um to LA and that's when I just like didn't have any money cuz I just really wanted to get out of the house. I was sick of living at home and I wanted to like start my new life, so I moved out here with like no money. Um and I kind of told my mom that I had money, but I really didn't have any money. Um and I was kind of hoping to just get by in the nude modeling, but it didn't end up panning out cuz it's kind of work that comes and goes. You don't really know if you're going to be able to work one month or whatever. Um, and what
0: does a typical shoot pay?
1: Like $200. Pretty decent. And is
0: that for all day, a couple hours?
1: Just for a few hours. Okay. Yeah. Um so yeah, that's pretty decent pay, but it's not like regular enough to Yeah, I mean, you'd have to war- get
0: it 3-4 times a week to be able to yeah. support yourself out here.
1: So that was not an option anymore, so I started looking into um escorting but it was really it was interesting because at this at this time at this moment in time, there was this bizarre phenomenon of the sugar baby, which was What's being that? born um the a sugar baby is someone who um has an arrangement with an older man, and they the older man. They agree on, like, some sort of situation where they'll meet a few times a month, and in return, the man gives her a monthly, like, bonus, or not bonus, monthly... Stipend? Allowance, it's called. Um, And so there's this whole internet phenomenon of sugar babies that was coming up, and I was just so fascinated by that. So I decided I wanted to try to do that, which... I would not recommend to anyone. I think that to meet up with someone a few times a month and have to act like
0: if you didn't like the materialism of your high school, <laughs> how are you? How yeah. are you going to? How are you going to like the fucking version of that?
1: Yeah, no, it was it was terrible. But I didn't have a choice. Like sex work, really, it it's born out of necessity, and it's not something that I, I felt that I had a choice ab- about. I had. Um, Successfully landed a part-time job, but I needed um, supplemental income, and it wasn't going to come from my family, um, and I didn't have savings, so this was the only option for me. And, um, and yeah. had you
0: and you had you tried getting regular jobs, you know, at the going to the mall or anything okay. like that, or did you yeah, feel? Yeah,
1: of, of course. Yeah. I mean, like, I it wasn't like I was unemployable. I had a BA and I know, but some people smart. look down. Some
0: people look down their nose at uh, the you know the job market. If it's if they, if they have a college education, you know, they'll be like, "I'm not going to go work at uh, you know the."
1: Yeah, no, I had no such notions. I, it's the gap just, or whatever. It's just hard to find a job here in general, especially if you're at twenty something, because all the jobs are already taken by people um, your age who are better at it. So, um, it, it was just a terrible market. Like I really tried for months and months to find a job. And when I finally found the part-time job, it was very odd hours. So it was hard to find a second job to to put on top Mm -hmm. of that one. And I wasn't just going to quit the part-time job. So it was a lot of juggling. Um, yeah, of course I applied to like Starbucks and like Target and, like I think Costco was even at one time possibility, but they, I never got any response from those. Um, so yeah, it was. I had to pay rent, um, and yeah, so that was.
0: So you looked into the sugar. The I looked sugar into din-
1: that, and that ended up just being way too much time and energy spent on a very small return, which I had one successful sugar baby experience so so what happens is there's kind of it was a tumblr community like there was like um, a sugar baby tag and everyone under the sugar baby tag um, talked about their experiences and talked about which websites were good to look for sugar daddies and stuff like that and um, very few of these women were getting paid um, the amount that other sugar babies had people thinking they were getting paid, which was um, like $10,000 a month. And that just didn't happen for people. I mean, $1,000 a month, I think, would even be a stretch. Um, wow. Yeah. It was not a... a
0: and, that, and that would be for meeting up with this person how many times?
1: Like two or three times a month and for however many hours at, at a time. So... If you're spending the night with someone two or three times a month and you're going to get $1,000 a month, like, it is, it is a raw deal. Um, but I thought that that was, like, the society, societally acceptable, socially acceptable version of escorting. So I decided to try that. And I had one successful one, and it wasn't successful. It was just, like, a functioning relationship, um, a functioning Sugar baby daddy relationship, but he was so like the thing with like sugar daddies is that they're they're trying to like say that they have more money than they do, and so um like this guy like all of his pictures were him. this is like really stupid detail, but um all of let his- me
0: guess standing <laughs> in front of something expensive
1: yeah and he had like a really nice car and. He was in front of... He's in the drive... A really long driveway of this house. And... Of course, it was, like, photoshopped from five years ago. And, um... Then, in person, he ended up... He lives in this really nice house, but it's in the middle of fucking Agora Hills. And it's... Like, he lives with five other dudes that are his age. Like, in their 40s. Like... Like in in a mansion That's weird. with like five forty year old guys and you're like, What is Are your deal? Are they all
0: like sugar daddies?"
1: No. It was a very strange situation. Um Yeah, so that was That is bizarre. That that. And I think the most I got out of him was a peacoat. He took me to Macy's once. And a what got, coat? A peacoat. A
0: P E A coat. Yes. Yeah.
1: And uh, yeah, and I think what once he paid me $200, and we met over the course of, like, two months, and that was all I got out of it. It was terrible.
0: And and how many times did you have to have sex with him?
1: I don't think we had—well, yeah, we, I probably had to have sex with him, but, I mean, he was, like, not bad-looking, so it was, like, ended up being, like, an okay situation, but, like, two or three times. And I never enjoyed the time we spent together. It was just, like, you know— He's not it's it could it could have been worse where do you
0: go in your are you able to be present when you are having sex with somebody who's giving that you're being paid for and you know in your mind you wouldn't do this in your regular life if there was you wouldn't be doing this if there wasn't x amount of money
1: Well, I'm present in the sense that I'm putting on the guise of another person. And I mean I, I styled myself totally differently. I wore a different perfume. I had a different set of lingerie when I was for when I was working versus when I was just being myself. Um and I had a different backstory. I had a kid like in my identity. So it was Was just that
0: like, was that to, to hopefully get more money from them by having a kid?
1: No, no. It wasn't any sort of it was more just like a, a flake device, like if I really didn't want to see one of my clients that I ended up having like one client for a year and a half and he would be really needy and clingy sometime and I sometimes and I would just be like can where am <laughs> my daughter like all day that's pretty smart it was and I was I, I had a really good but um so I would put all those things between me and the client so I did have I mean I was present but I I was present and acting as someone else so I didn't I as acting as a persona acting as a persona so it wasn't mm. It's not entirely present, I don't think. And usually I'd had, like, some weed or, like, something to drink or something, too, Mm -hmm. and that helps, but, yeah. But, I mean, I think also the escorting part, like, when I did that, as opposed to to the sugar baby thing, um, it was so much less, or so so much less stressful um, because you had a time limit, and then after that, time you're like okay like bye (laughs) like it doesn't matter if they're finished like you don't have to deal with like did you have
0: somebody protecting you
1: no 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 no. that Um, sounds dangerous no well i kind of wised up after my sugar baby experience because i had had such rotten luck with these terrible dudes and i learned that i should be screening these guys and (laughs) before i like meet them at their house um And I started becoming, like, finding the escort community. Like, basically what I would do is I would, like, go on Backpage and I would look at all the escort ads and see what they were doing. And then sometimes I would, like, text the girls and, like, ask them for advice. Um, Were they helpful? Yeah. Like, surprisingly. Like, it was – it's very competitive, like, because there are so many young, beautiful women here that are making thousands and thousands of dollars from – um, this kind of work and so it was constantly I felt like I was in competition but sometimes someone would reach out and you'd become friends or something but um, um, no so I think when I started escorting I for, forget what this train of thought was stemming from um, like time we were talking about like the time limit was helpful mm-hmm. um, and and uh, oh, are, dangerous. That was you. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Was anybody protecting you? Um. No, no one was protecting me. And I think that was really shitty at the beginning because I had no idea what I was doing to the point where I didn't know that the client was always supposed to pay in cash. And I ended up getting a couple checks and they ended up bouncing and then the client would just disappear. And that was a terrible experience. But I was really stubborn. Like... Also the guys were kind of stupid that were doing this because they show like they took me to their home address. So like I knew where they lived and I knew what their job was. Sometimes I even knew what their last name was. So I kind of already had this information about them, but like if I couldn't track them down and like get them to pay me, like there was no way to be paid at that point. So it was like really stupid that I was just taking checks have from you, like random people.
0: If you had been uh, uh- vindictive person uh you certainly if they their check bounced you could have made their lives miserable. oh i did
1: i did with one guy and it was i was because it was the second time that had happened to me with with the second guy and i thought i had smartened up and i thought this guy was legit and he ended up not being legit um, and I was just on the warpath, And so I like parked outside of his house with the lights on and his kids and his wife were inside. Oh my God. <laughs> I just sat there and, um, he's like, you have to go. Like the neighbors are going to call. Like we have neighborhood watch. And I was like, where's my, you know, wh- however much you owe me. And and he's like, I'll get it to you tomorrow. I have to go to the bank and stuff. And I'd be like, okay, well I'll wait here while you go to the bank. Um, and then and then, like, sometimes his wife would text me and be like, you bitch, like, you're fucking my man and, like, you dumb slut." And I was like, well, I'll go away if he pays me, like, and.
0: That sounds really tumultuous. <laughs> it
1: was crazy. Really,
0: really <laughs> not worth the money.
1: No, at that point. But he, but the thing was, he owed me, like, like $1,400.
0: What would uh, a typical, what would you make for a typical uh, session? Is that what you would call mm-hmm. it?
1: Um, I was, I also, like, I was so bad at marketing myself. Like, I was just terrible at this whole thing. I was just bad at it, um, from a business perspective, because I didn't know how to market myself without, um, I don't know, I didn't want to overexpose myself because I didn't want to risk getting caught, but I also, um... I should have just like put in the money to get better pictures and I would have gotten so much more work. But anyway, um so I would charge I oh, I think I don't know if I overcharged. The thing that's cool with escorting is that you you can set your price and um and like that's just what it is and when people try to bargain with you and stuff, you're just like, "No, if you want like $75, ho, like go on back page, like that's not me." Um but, yeah, no, so my price was 400 So I was, I, well, I also, that kind of put me out of the way of, of really sleazy assholes. Because anything, like, below, like, the 300 mark is just, like, a lot of really shady business. Um, not necessarily, I guess. I think it depends if you're, like, going through an agency or something. Mm-hmm. You might.
0: Maybe have agents. Yeah, that, like... the book escorts. Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah. why not? There's agents for everything yeah, else. Yeah,
1: no, um, there's escort agencies. They're not, like, overt about the fact that they're escort agencies. Mm-hmm. They usually have, like, some sort of a... Like, you can't just escort if you work for them. You also have to be, like... Like, you might have to do porn or something, like, on the side, so they look like a legit operation. Um, but... So, yeah, so I set my own price and I kind of like didn't know if I was setting the right price or anything.
0: Would you ever encounter somebody that was willing to pay you the amount of money that you wanted, but you were so physically repulsed by them that you couldn't go through with it? Or would you just go through with it and
1: check out? Um, I Well, I was really only making myself available to people who were... Willing to go through a verification process, so that kind of eliminated like really. Actually, I don't know why it would eliminate gross dudes, because it didn't. And I did. Did, have, it,
0: did it not matter to you what the person looked like?
1: Um, I. I it's business. Like you really, it, you don't think about it as like, would I ever sleep with this person in real life? It's just like, okay, you're giving no, me money. No, I, I,
0: I realize that it's not a you know, that escorts aren't going to only sleep with people that they would would sleep with in in real life. I realized that, that, you know, they're doing something, they're being paid for something that that they otherwise wouldn't normally do. Mm -hmm. But I just never understood how you could, if there was just something absolutely repellent about somebody, could you go through with that? How do you, what do you do? Do you... That just always puzzled me. I guess.
1: I mean, it's like if you're at Coachella and you have to go to the bathroom and you have to use the porta potties, <laughs> like
0: <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs>
1: like you just do it. You just do it and you get it over with. But it's your body. Yeah, but it's also kind of just like once you know, like once you know the things, like the right things to do in each set, like in each session, and what works, it kind of just becomes like a chain reaction of events that you kind of just. You do step one, step two, step three, what are, step four. What are those steps? Um,
0: if I, you're comfortable talking,
1: I, I don't know. Like, I, I think it varied with each of my clients, but I was really intuitive. So sex for me is just really easy, um, and and I enjoy it. I mean, obviously, I didn't enjoy it when I was when I was working as a sex worker, but like, I knew what men liked and I knew how to do it correctly and so just kind of without fail it would go well every time in
0: other words you get them to orgasm quickly right and and that I would imagine was your goal to get them to orgasm as quickly as possible
1: well I mean then they'd probably redo it more than once in a session Mm. too like there's no limit on what goes on it's just like I mean I set my own limits in terms of like what I will and won't do but in terms of like how many times we do Mm -hmm. whatever it's what however many times they can so
0: and what would you what were the things that you wouldn't do and were there ever times that you did the things you said you weren't going to do
1: um i was i mean i think kissing for me was something i really didn't like because just in general i'm not a big fan of kissing men um (laughs) But also just because it seemed kind of intimate to me still.
0: I think kissing is incredibly intimate. So
1: I ultimately at the beginning, I didn't really want to, but I ended up doing that with my long term clients. So I don't think that I did you hate it? Um, yeah, yeah, I hated every second of it.
0: Did you did you find yourself beating yourself up saying, why did I agree to do that?
1: I mean when I'm in the mindset of I there's no other choice for me I really need this money I kind of just my I believe like my inside my inside head voice you at sit the door. You, you
0: sit on the Coachella shitter. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I just get it done. Um but no, I mean I didn't do um like I didn't do like greek as they call it what's that um which is, is it anal, anal. <laughs> yeah they call i don't know why greek? they call it greek i, well, still the, have them the, I guess they were into but sex um yeah so i didn't do i didn't do that and i didn't do anything like unprotected so like if, even if it was oral like it you'd have to be protected um and i
0: and would guys try to get it to be unprotected
1: yeah and ultimately like I've been saying that a lot. But I think that if they were willing to go through, like, the testing and stuff, and I had been seeing them for a while, then it, I would be okay with it. Because you really can't contract a lot from oral if the person doesn't have, like, herpes and you know mm-hmm. that they don't because they've shown you their test. Like, so, that like, for – I would make exceptions, yes, for certain clients, for, um, mostly for people I'd, I had established a trust with. But, no, I don't think – I would have ever compromised on like the, like the, anything that I wouldn't do in my real life, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna do um in my work life uh, did so, you ever
0: have a female client?
1: No, I don't think that happens. I think that's a movie tale a, a <laughs> fairy tale <laughs> thing. I don't think it exists. I wish it existed, but um no what do you oh actually, what? I have an addendum to that. the guy, my longest term client who I was. Who I saw for, I think for the whole two—not the whole two years—but almost the entire time I was escorting, um, he was needy as hell, and he basically thought I was his girlfriend. So really, he he legitimately thought that I was his girlfriend, and he would constantly ask me to spend the night. And I somehow ended up not having to spend the night with him. But he was—he was a nice guy, like he was a decent human. But like, I there was there's a line between like work and and personal stuff and he just didn't know where that line was um and so he was continually like making me meet his friends and stuff and it was just uncomfortable like he would have his friends over and then i'd come by and he'd he'd be like And
0: and he wouldn't say that he was paying you to them
1: no he would just say hey this is my girl and like introduce me
0: oh that's so sad
1: and it was just really uncomfortable for me because i felt like he wasn't respecting the fact that what we were sharing was like
0: a transaction
1: a transaction and not i wasn't part of his actual life in terms of him. It's you know the, just weird.
0: the sex workers that i've talked to the, the thing that they always say is that the the guys that come to them more than anything they're looking for companionship mm-hmm. they're looking for somebody to see them and hear them Right, and feel them, and it's really an emotional thing yes. that is sexualized.
1: Yeah, I mean, you get that, and and well, what I was getting to with the the female client is that um, he had this friend who was like they hooked up a lot, but um, she lived in New York, so she was never around, and she was coming to visit, and he had been telling her about me, and really wanted us to meet and have a threesome and i was like i don't know like it's
0: just the same guy that pretended you were yes. his girlfriend okay
1: and i was just like this is weird because like she doesn't know that he pays me and he just thinks like i'm is whatever side piece over here and then she's his side piece over on the other side of the country so it was just like weird it was um and i mean i did it because like he was paying me and i think he paid me like a lot more to do that so it was like yeah but that was just weird because it was like she was intimately connected to him and and had real feelings and emotions for him and we were all in the same bed together and it was just like i feel like i was also crossing their boundaries like Mm -hmm. their own intimacy because i was like this unwanted not unwanted i was just like this weird like foreign body interloper yeah, right. in their actual real life, and it was very strange. And did
0: he want the two of you to interact, or yeah.
1: was it... Yeah, like, he like was like, okay, you girls have fun, and then I'll come in later. And,
0: and what was that like? Was that easier than being with a man for yeah,
1: you? Yeah, so much easier, but <laughs> yeah. she was just really cool, too, like, I think, but...
0: And was she into it, or was she doing it for him?
1: No, she was into it. Um,
0: did that not feel she like work, then, for she you? She
1: wanted to fly me out to uh, Brooklyn, to just like hang out with her for a week <laughs> that was like
0: did you consider it
1: i did but
0: it comes with him attached though at some point probably it,
1: that and i didn't want to become any more enmeshed in his life and she still didn't know that i was a paid woman so that just would have been all kinds of awkward but um yeah and i did have a physically repulsive guy i think we talked about him mm-hmm. briefly um he was my other I only had three clients at the end. Um, and I didn't have many more than that to begin with. Like, um,
0: Would you prefer a client who is physically repulsive or personality repulsive?
1: I mean, equally, it's going to be a disgusting thing to me. <laughs> so I don't have a preference because like, everything is just at the base level of just being terrible. Um, but... I- yeah I think I I don't know I, I at least if a person is civil and shows empathy toward me like even if it's not me it, even if it's a persona it it feels like some sort of a, a pay a payoff at the end um, so that's kind of a nice added bonus but it's never it's never a a consolation it's just kind of a oh sometimes they'll be a jerk sometimes they'll be disgusting and either way it's just gonna be a terrible psychic experience (laughs) like
0: what kind of a toll do you think it's it's taken on you mentally emotionally uh, sexually
1: um I think I was able to at the beginning it was really tumultuous because I was trying to find my my client base and also try to figure out how being a sex worker worked. And that was really rough, and I had some really awful experiences um, at the beginning. But towards the end, it was kind of just routine. Um, and that's not to say it still wasn't emotionally taxing at the end, but I think towards the end, it, it became more tolerable.
0: With the way you view other people, you know let's say you had a day where you had to go work to mm-hmm. make money would the way that you would interact the rest of the day with other people in your life be affected by what you had done would did it make you want to pull away from people did it make you want to not be around men i mean is it, what that's a does that make sense the yeah, question yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm i'm asking
1: totally um well i mean when i was escorting at least the the last year i was escorting i had a 9 to 5 job so it was like if i saw someone on a tuesday night then the next morning i was at work at 9am so i didn't really have a lot of time to feel like icky about it um because i just had to go right into other work mode after getting off of getting out of the that work mode um but yeah, um, it definitely in terms of my personal relationships, it was very taxing um, because I couldn't have at the time what I wanted, which was a committed monogamous relationship with someone um, when I was physically involved with other people and obviously unable to tell them that I was physically involved with other people. Um, so in that way, it definitely affected my, my the way I intera- interacted with others. And also, like, it's weird to go home to someone who's significant to you after having spent time doing something that is really disgusting to you and you feel like your body has been violated. I mean, even after you take a shower and you sit down with someone you love, it's kind of just like, they don't really know exactly what I've just done. And that was difficult. Um especially because I really wanted to, t- to talk to someone and to be, to be emotionally close to other people. And I didn't know how to do that when I was transitioning from sex work to regular life. Um, so I just didn't have any emotional connections, basically those entire two years or the ones that I did we're very chaotic and I think that's something I'm realizing actually that's apart from sex work that I just like am bad at relationships but um
0: are you attracted to chaotic people
1: yes and that's been something that I'm definitely growing out of because I've just had all the chaos I can take at this point um but definitely when I'm already living having this chaotic lifestyle as as muted as it may be, because I don't really talk to anyone about it, it's still that part that chaos influences my real life chaos. And if I have a boring life, then I um I felt like I had to bring in outside, like I had to have drama going going on in my regular life, um, which is was really dumb. And I think that was just part of being young too. I was like twenty two when I started. No, I was twenty three. But I was still fairly new to LA and as an adult and I didn't really know how to interact with people. Like my first, I'm really just going into way too much detail. Um but my fir- my the first year I moved here I like um started seeing this director and it was like it was strange because I kind i was never attracted to fame before but it was like so i knew it wasn't that but i also just wondered why i was attracted to this kind of toxic man who really had no emotional availability and it was it was because like i was i wanted someone who was established in the industry to tell me if my work was good and like i wanted validation for that and that turned into validation via sex and then validation via, you know, does he text me back or whatever. And so...
0: Was he a director of uh, non-pornographic stuff or pornographic?
1: No, no, no. He was like a a feature film director. Okay. Um, And what
0: what was the work that you wanted him to validate?
1: um, I was writing a bunch of different scripts at that time. Okay. And it was just like the wrong way to approach anyone to do anything. But like, that wasn't really, I wasn't expecting anything to come out of it. I just wanted validation because I was in this city by myself and I didn't know if I was supposed to be here at all. And I was doing these terrible things I didn't want to be doing. And I just wanted to know that it, that someone could justify the fact that I'm here for a reason and I'm talented or tell me something like that. So I was just, but I was going about getting that sort of validation, like, the worst possible ways so yeah that like was the chaos that i would kind of bring to my life was like being in these really icky relationships
0: do you find yourself now able to identify a toxic relationship and find yourself able to uh resist the temptation to enmesh
1: yes and no um more so yes because i have I, I know who I am at this point and am comfortable in my own skin. At least mentally and emotionally I'm comfortable in my own skin, um, and, in my own skin. Um, and intellectually. But uh, I do feel sometimes like I will do something that's really stupid. And I, there's no reason for me to to have, a, to have done that other than I wanted to create some sort of or to receive some sort of a reaction for doing that. And I find myself doing that a, a lot sometimes, but then it just won't happen for a while. So I kind of have these concentrated periods of just like saying things that are really stupid and um, being in a ta- – like I don't know. I think when – also when when I think about toxic relationships, there's – there's negativity coming from both sides, and I think that I've recently come to realize that a lot of the negativity is coming from my side and coming from like these imagined obstacles that I'm putting between me and the other person.
0: I would imagine too that you've got a lot of buried rage in you. You, you know, no. <laughs> I don't, I don't, get, I don't get that from talking to you, but from what you've been through in your life, um, who who wouldn't be pissed off because. You went through some really difficult shit. You know, mm-hmm. you had all this drama with your sister. You you were raised by a single mom who invalidated your feelings. You dealt with racism. Mm-hmm. You've 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 gone into sex work just to keep your head above the water. Mm-hmm. I mean, why not put your fist through a fucking wall?
1: Yeah, it's that. But then it's like, yeah. But then I have to clean up the wall bits. <laughs> like then I have to deal with like the after effects of being mad and and so so many times that when i i will get mad i will just talk myself out of being mad and um which works sometimes and other times it doesn't but i think actually i went I acted out, I think I acted out a lot of that rage on other people and not in a in a straightforward way, in a passive aggressive way. Good for
0: you. I had a girl. That's what <laughs> I did for for decades with what with what I thought were jokes. I thought yeah. it was funny. And I couldn't see that it was just it's it bad was news. anger, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, I cut you off.
1: I did that a lot and I I think I kinda got it out of my system. A lot of the rage I got out of my system in college because I, it was kind of my first um, understanding of injustice and my first understanding of, like, white privilege and how I've been influenced negatively by, um, like, just systematic racism and stuff. So it was, that was a lot of rage-filled years for me. And to an extent, I acted out, um, healthily, like, went to a lot of parties, and, like, did drugs, and was, like, generally a cynic, and kind of, you know, thought I was very, um, blasé, and... No, whatever I don't know, I had a lot of different phases in college. Well, but. you know, I
0: would I would think your playwriting would be like the ultimate healthiest place for you to to, yeah, to get definitely. out your your rage. You know, you you really lit up when I asked you that question about what you felt the first time you heard your your words performed, <laughs> yeah. and it uh, it just um, it's a little heartbreaking hearing your story because I I, I see this kind of wounded kid mm-hmm. inside of you that just wants to be seen that yeah. just wants to be <laughs> felt and heard and and embraced and and you've you've just struggled so hard to find that outlet i mean i think we all on some level kind of have that that's life's biggest battle is how mm-hmm. can we be validated in a way that isn't clingy or needy or 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 gross right you know how do we get to that place where we where we like ourselves and we can navigate the world yeah but um i don't know that just that just kind of um struck me
1: yeah no definitely and i think too that now that i've stopped putting myself in terrible positions which actually doesn't have anything to do with sex work it really has to do more with the fact that i would knowingly get into really dumb relationships or like one-sided relationships that were not healthy or conducive to my growth at all i think that now that i've stopped doing that bullshit stuff that i can really just focus on on my my work and uh so far like the past year it's i've gotten like three times as much writing down as I have, like, years prior, so. That's awesome. So that's, that part's good, but...
0: Yeah. Have you ever been to therapy?
1: Yes. <laughs> I When I was diagnosed when I was 10, that was my entrance into therapy, and um, I kept seeing my therapist regularly. He was technically just my psychiatrist. He was not great at talk therapy.
0: Most psychiatrists aren't.
1: <laughs> and he still is not, but... Um, we would, and it also we, we mostly just talked about the family issues because it was always some, some drama drama at home. So I I would like to have a therapist out here, but my um, insurance is very limited because I'm on the state plan, and I have like a total of twenty three um, psychiatrists slash psychologists that I could possibly go to, and like half of them aren't accepting new patients, and the other half are probably terrible. So at this point, I'm kind of just like getting my meds from my doctor. Where,
0: where um, are you living in the valley
1: Um, or over the hill? No, I, I live in um, like L.A. proper.
0: There's a place that I went to uh, called the San Fernando Valley Family Counseling Center that works on a sliding scale. Oh, okay. And uh, my experience with them was awesome. Oh, cool. Um, uh, so Google Lofi Therapy and the name of your just go you know do los angeles and then um you can often find places um the dd hirsch center might be another place where you could find low fee uh counseling um there's a uh antioch college uh here uh they train therapists and i would bet that they if you don't mind working with somebody who is working on their hours mm-hmm. um which I don't, because the the woman that I had was fantastic, mm-hmm. and uh, she was working on her her hours. So, you know, just throwing throwing that out there, that might be a good uh, because you deserve to be heard, and and um,
1: yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, definitely.
0: Uh, anything else you'd like to share before we do, uh, some fears and loves?
1: Nah, nah, I'm good.
0: Okay. Get me with some fears.
1: Okay. Um, I'm afraid my daughter will suffer silently. <laughs> this is so dark. <laughs> <laughs> I, li- I like when they're
0: dark right out of the gate.
1: Okay. Um, I'm afraid my daughter will suffer silently as I did and I'll never know she was in pain.
0: It's a good one. Give me another one.
1: Um I'm afraid I'll never meet my birth parents because I waited too long to search and they died before I could locate them. Oh,
0: you're not fucking around. You are just <laughs> the gloves are off. Yep. Give me another one. I'm going to start f- fashioning a noose for myself.
1: Um I'm afraid my life partner will friend zone me after a couple of decades. Will what? (laughs) Will friend zone me and decide they're no longer in love with me after we had been together a couple of decades. Oh, put
0: you in the friend zone out of the romantic. I've never heard that before. Friend zone. (laughs) Yep,
1: friend zone. It's a good millennial term. Um, I'm afraid my mother will die poor because I failed to provide her with a comfortable life during her final years.
0: Have you ever asked your mom for money when you were in these situations where oh, you yeah. felt like you had to turn for, for, to, to sex
1: work? Well, she doesn't have a job. Oh. So she doesn't have money to Does give Does she me. look for jobs? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. Well, she actually, she has like a, a like a trust. We have like technically have a trust. Mm-hmm. So she has enough money to live on but just like no more than enough money to live okay.
0: on. Give me another fear and then we'll do some loves.
1: Okay. Um, I fear that The individuals who impacted my life the most do not remember me at all.
0: That's pretty heavy. (laughs) That's pretty heavy. Um, Let's do some loves. Okay. I like how I say let's. I'm I'm chipping in nothing.
1: Let's. Um, I love the prairie, particularly under a pitch black sky dotted with stars. I keep mistaking for fireflies.
0: Oh, that's a beautiful one. (laughs) I do I do love the Midwest and the and the winter. There wow. is um the uh I lived on a cul-de-sac uh, growing up that backed up to woods and, yes. then, I, and then the I'm, best. It was the best. And then on the other side of the woods was Virgin Prairie. Had Ooh, truly wow. never nothing ever had wow. been built there. That's and the dream, man. It was it was so good when we would take our dog off the leash and we'd walk our her name was Misty. And uh, she was a border collie and she would go through, you know, because it was high grass. It was mm-hmm. like, I don't know, maybe three feet tall. Wow. And she would, um, you'd lose sight of her and then she'd spring Aww. up and then you'd lose sight of her and That's she'd so spring cute. up. And it was, it was just my favorite thing in uh, the world, walking, walking Misty through the, the virgin prairie. Go Childhood, ahead. man. Yeah. Give me another one.
1: Um, I love when someone calls me out on my bullshit.
0: That's good. That's a good thing. That's a true friend, man. Yeah. That is a true friend. That that to me is like a friendship goes to another level when you can lovingly uh, call a friend on on their stuff.
1: Yeah, or unlovingly being like you're being an idiot. Like get your hand out of your ass. Yeah. Stop being stupid. Um, I love it. I love watching a fan spin and the sound of a fan over total silence as I fall asleep.
0: Oh, that's an interesting one.
1: I've always liked fans. Object permanence. Um, I love when there's tons of snow on the ground, but it's so sunny you almost want to sunbathe.
0: Yeah, oh, that's a good one. Uh, have you ever gone spring skiing? No. It's fun. it's fun. The snow isn't great, but you're in a t-shirt. You can even yeah. be in shorts, uh, and you can really get burned. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're getting a double <laughs> reflection, right? The sun and then the sun off the snow. Um, Oh, I had another one. What, what what was the last one that you did? Um, I triggered something.
1: Fans, I like. Fans. No, no,
0: and then and then you did
1: someone who calls me on my bullshit.
0: No, and then what was after that?
1: Um, snow on the ground.
0: Oh, I know what it is. It's a hate and a love combined. Mm. When it's super super cold and snow squeaks. Oh yeah. Because I I love the sobering effect of biting cold. Yes. But that it's almost like nails on a blackboard when, yeah. when snow is that when it when it squeaks because it. it's so because yeah. it's so cold out.
1: Yeah, a lot of that in Minnesota. A yeah. lot of that. A lot of digging out the car and like from under a bunch of ice.
0: I love when you get the first freeze and the local pond is like glass, <gasps> yes. and you walk out on it, and, and you're a little afraid because yeah. you don't know if it's going to crack, and uh, putting on skates and being one of the first people to make an impression on the <sighs> on the ice, that is like the, uh, if I had like a last day on earth, that would be one of the things, yeah. would be to put on skates and and skate on a perfect, perfect slab of Pond ice.
1: Or if you somehow had a weather machine and you could you could go from the tall prairie grass like right into the like putting on your skates and then
0: skate it, onto a beach.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. And then onto a beach. Yeah. That's the way to go. Got to get a weather machine. Um. Let's see. More loves. I have one more. I think. Um. Oh, I love when the person I'm driving around with in the car um doesn't mind that sometimes I just don't talk for long periods of time.
0: That's nice. That's nice. I don't like friendships where uh, there can't be silence. It's yeah. I get worn down by people that have to fill silence.
1: Yeah, even when you're like in the bathroom and you're like, okay, they're going to stop talking for this amount of time, and then they just keep going. Um, that's fun.
0: Well, thank you so much for, uh, for coming and um, sharing your life with us. And um, I really... I really hope that you can go. Not that I think you're a basket case, but you've been through some stuff, and I really yeah. hope that you can go um, open up with the with the therapist. I mean, you sound yeah. like you're heading in the in the right direction. Totally. Yeah. Thank you, Gladys. Of
1: course. Thank you.
0: Many, many thanks to uh, to Gladys. Um, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to uh, remind you guys that there's. Well, first of all, uh, Podfest is uh, coming this September in Los Angeles. It's the uh, Fourth annual LA Pod Festival and um, a really great lineup of people and uh, I will be participating and um, if you want to know everybody that is uh, performing there, go to the uh, lapodfest.com website and uh, they're doing what they did last year, uh, which is they are offering offering video streaming of the event. So if you can't travel to go see it, you can still see literally every single show that's there. And it's only $25. You can watch it as it happens live, uh, or you can watch it for up to three weeks after after the festival. And if you use the code uh, MENTAL, I think that's what the code is for, uh, for my show. Let's see uh, mental. Yeah. If you use the offer code mental, you'll get, uh, $5 off. It'll only be 20 bucks, um, to, to see all those shows. And here's the good part. Uh, $7 of that goes to me. So you're really, really helping to support the show. Uh, it's a great way to, to make a donation to the show and you get entertained, uh, as well. And there's, um, too many good shows to 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 list. Um some of the top some of the most popular podcasts. Oh God, Paul, shut up. Um wanna also remind you uh, a couple of different ways to support the show if you feel so inclined. Go to the website, you can make donations, you can shop at Amazon through our portal, we get a couple of nickels, doesn't cost you anything. Um, spread the word through about our podcast through social media that really uh that that helps because the more listeners we get um the the more financial footing we have to operate on because uh it's there's we can we can use more money um, Let's get to the surveys. This is struggle in a sentence survey uh, this was filled out by I want to thank uh, the guys for uh, kicking in on the on the surveys. Uh, normally, it's about three quarters of the surveys are filled out by women, and I always f- feel like, come on, dudes, well, do your part. Let's uh, let's hear from you. And this week, uh, there's no shortage of uh, male respondents. So, thank you. This was filled out by a, a kid, actually, who calls himself Ja Jamin Jamon. And about his alcoholism, he writes, always quitting to help myself, but really only so my tolerance will decrease. About his OCD, I repeat what others say and speak only in even syllables. If someone speaks a sentence with an uneven number of syllables, I'll mentally repeat the sentence with added words until the sentence is even. It's amazing the lengths our brains will go to distract us. This was filled out um by a woman who calls herself a fake name, and she writes, "I live in a very rural area, and it just took a week for a coworker to find out i'd uh it took just a week for a coworker to find out i'd interviewed for another position sixty miles away. so how can I go see a therapist they'd void my life insurance out of suspicion." Uh, I'd committed suicide if I died, and I might lose my professional license and my records with my therapist could become part of the public domain via the professional i oh, want got got cut off right there, but I wanted to say uh, patients have way more rights than that, and um that they would have, first of all, they would have to have proof that you'd committed suicide they they couldn't just suspect that you'd committed committed suicide, and um the I forget the name of the act, but there was a, a mental health act that was enacted about a um, year or so ago that greatly uh, enforced patients' rights um, with uh, mental uh, disabilities. And it might even be called the Mental Disabilities Act. I'm not sure, but uh, I believe that that most of the, this stuff is is your imaginings. Um, but I know it's scary to make that. You, can also, you could do a therapy uh, through the internet. There are uh, internet therapists. So you might check that out. Uh, this is the same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Blade Runner about her anxiety. Uh, There's a house on fire, but I don't know where it is, and I can't smell the smoke. But if I don't call 911, people will burn to death, and nobody believes me. Thank you for that. I actually almost burned my garage down uh, yesterday. My friend Jay was over, he needed a big piece of wood cut for his mantle and it. it he wanted to use my table saw because I've got a really nice table saw. And um, when you're cutting on a table saw, you really want to have the edge that you guide against the fence. Um, you want that edge to be straight so the, so the piece isn't moving around because when a piece moves around on a table saw, it can pinch and it can kick back, which can be really dangerous. Or the blade can get super hot because it's getting getting jammed, which is what happened, especially if it's a really dense piece of wood. And this was a piece of white oak, and it was smoking. And, um, and about two minutes, so we can finish cutting the piece of wood, but it really smells, you can just smell the, the burnt wood in the air. And all of a sudden I look, and the dust collector, which I have is big, it's like a, a giant a garbage can essentially, um, is on fire. It's a ball of orange flame, uh, the, the, the size of, uh, a, a beach ball. <laughs> my life flashed before my eyes. I'm like, it's all over. Everything's done. Everything is done. And, uh, so I turned the, the air off on the, uh, the dust collector because that was feeding the the flames and uh, and i'm trying to take this thing apart as fast as possible you know i've got the fire extinguisher out of course i haven't ever really read the instructions so i'm just staring at it i don't know what to pull i don't know what to squeeze and i'm like fuck it i'm just gonna uh, i'm gonna take the the dust collector apart uh hopefully before it explodes because you get enough sawdust together it will explode and um uh, I was able to get this thing taken apart and empty all of the uh, sawdust out, but uh, <laughs> I suppose every woodworker at some point uh, has has a uh, fire experience in their in their shop. All right, this is this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by um, a guy who calls himself Whiska. And it's uh, the snapshot from his uh, struggle that I wanted to read. He deals with depression and anxiety and writes, I often have trouble, not so much with anger, but how it comes out. People often comment to me uh, when they have made me angry or annoyed that I lash out too viciously at them or are too mean. At the time and even later, I felt I was justified with my reaction. Everyone has the right to be annoyed at someone, yet I get called out on it. No, everyone has the right to be annoyed and angry But people don't have the right to lash out at at other people. Um, Continuing, this uh, has caused me to hold in any frustration, making me feel stressed and alone, as I have no way of venting my frustration. You have no way yet of venting your frustration. That's what support groups and therapy and reading self-help books is all about, is learning ways to vent your frustration continuing. I'm worried that one day I won't be able to control my pent-up anger at people who annoy me throughout the life, my life. The person walking behind my car while I'm in reverse, I'm just going to run over. Blocking a supermarket aisle, toss your trolley and push you into a shelf. Making noise in the library, I'm going to scream and punch you in the nose. Writing things down, um, these things down, I feel that my reactions are over the top, but the narcissism of people winds me up. I guess there's a bit of Travis Bickle in all of us. Dude, I totally relate to the feelings, and you know, me almost snapping it at somebody um, at the grocery store um, is uh, shows us that you know even. Oh, shut up, Paul! I just bored myself. You're not alone, dude. You're not alone, but get some tools to cope. How's that? That's what I wanted to say. This is an an awfulsome moment that. Uh, Listener Nikki emailed me, and uh, she writes, I woke up last Monday to a fraud alert email from my credit card company. One by one, each of my accounts were targeted. By the end of the day, all my accounts were frozen. I'd planned to leave the city prior to this because the intensity of the stalking has been causing my panic and depression to deepen. But with no money that plan flew out the window. After a week I managed to get the charges removed, the accounts closed and new ones opened. I got another email yesterday from Blizzard Entertainment. They informed my World of Warcraft. They informed me my World of Warcraft account was being banned for illegal gaining of game gold. I erupted in laughter. After my stalker could no longer access my accounts, he ruined the credit of my level eighty-five night elf druid. <laughs> that is fantastic. I tell you, a good awful moment is Christmas to me. Just absolute If Christmas was twenty four hours of me reading awful moments, I would be more f- I would I would decorate the entire neighborhood in lights. That's the closest thing that I can come to understanding the joy people feel around Christmas. If somebody would just say, oh, well, Paula, it's like when you read An Awfulsome Moment, then I'd be like, oh, yes, of course you love Christmas. Now, I don't think that you were a uh, gullible idiot. Actually, I don't think people, I'm jealous of people that can, can enjoy Christmas. Uh, this is, uh, struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself happy, happy elf and about his sex addiction. He writes, it's humbling when even hookers won't reply to texts. Um, snapshot from his life does secretly watching mom getting banged by yet another boyfriend on the couch when I was nine qualify as trauma. Yeah, I'd say that, uh, it probably does. Uh, Same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Captain Jack Sorrow um, about her depression. It's like being a beached whale that can survive without water. You can't go anywhere, and there's no solace that it won't be forever. About her anxiety. I used to dive routinely with dangerous sharks sans cage, yet the prospect of having to call to make a haircut appointment gives me an aneurysm. That is so... It is so fucking awful and fantastic. some. Same survey filled out by uh, a non-binary uh, person who refers to themselves uh, as useless fuck. Uh, they write about their anxiety. Like walking up the stairs in the dark and then you take an extra step and it's like that fa- falling feeling but all the time but being a sex crime victim. The motherfucker's getting married the day after my birthday and I can't tell anyone that it makes me want to vomit because they'll want to know why. About having autism, uh, they write, I can't go out with my friends for a night because just the thought of bright lights, loud music, unfamiliar food, and having to keep up a conversation that long makes me want to sleep for about 20 years. I think so many of us relate to that, that feeling. Sometimes just the thought of doing something will make me go back to bed um, and they want to know uh, they want to hear more episodes that uh, involve autism or autism spectrum uh, I'd recommend the especially the um, episode with uh, Louise or uh, John H I think those are good episodes around that this is a snapshot uh, from uh, Denise She writes, I decided to tell my parents I was raped. And in parentheses, she writes, I hate that word and use assaulted usually. We were all doing yard work. When I finally vomited it out, my mother became hysterical and ran inside. My dad followed her. No one said anything comforting to me or stayed with me. They fucking did nothing. It was still pretty recent. I needed a fucking hug or something. I struggle with feeling responsible for my trauma and angry and my emotionally vacant parents. This is an incident I will never let go of, and I don't want to. I don't know if this is uh, what kind of answer you were looking for. Feeling unsure makes me anxious. Yeah, that's absolutely... I mean, that is a seminal snapshot from a person's life. That says so much. That that, that made me angry when I read this. Um, you know, I read a lot of really fucked up shit on, on this podcast. But when I see parents putting their own emotions in front of a child's need to be comforted, and I know your parents are emotionally ignorant. I know they were probably raised, um, they never had intimacy and compassion probably modeled for them, but it just makes me angry that in the moment you need them the most, they make it all about themselves. I highly recommend you contact uh, Rape and Incest National Network and go to some counseling or any kind of um, rape crisis center because you deserve... You deserve to be around people who understand the myriad fucked up ways that trauma affects us. It is a roller coaster in the dark, sometimes going backwards, and we need all the support we can get, and you deserve it. You absolutely deserve it, but just know that you are not alone in in dealing with that. And I would... It sounds like your parents are not people to go to for important emotional thing so i would stop trying to go to that dry well for water uh same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, actually uh, she is a teenager uh calls herself living calculator about her anorexia if i don't lose weight i will lose control and the world will fall apart about her ocd the world is made of numbers and i need to count them uh, snapshot from her life. This past family reunion, everyone made food and brought it in for us to eat. There was no way that I could know how many calories were in those food things, but uh, I knew my family would freak out if I didn't eat. I wound up eating half a deviled egg and burst into tears because I couldn't calculate the number of calories per bite and control things. Thank you for that. This is filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself Piper Pie about her trichotillomania. She writes, I can't stop pulling out each hair, comparing it with the last. I know I should stop, but my hand keeps moving upwards, grasping a hair from my head and yanking. Hair litters the floor around me. How much time has passed? Hours or minutes? I need to stop pulling, but I can't. Tomorrow I will try to hide the bald patches and hope no one will comment. This is an uh, awfulsome moment filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Soldier Socks. He writes, A few years back, after struggling quite hard, I finally found a job that paid very well and had frequent breaks. On one break, a coworker showed me an online dating profile with a, quote, Check out this whore. It was the woman I'd been sleeping beside for the past four years. Her profile was more than clear about what she wanted and stated she wanted to upgrade from trolling parking lots when I'm on night shift. That night, I got my layoff notice. Wow. Dude, sending you some love. Sending you some love in a in a basket with a bow. That is harsh. Um, this is a psych ward experience, uh, survey filled out by a guy who calls himself complicated. Need I say more? Uh, and he writes, uh, why were you hospitalized? Psychotic, found with a noose and a butcher knife. Bad day, really. Uh, Describe your experience. I felt like I didn't belong there, like everyone else was ill and I wasn't. I wasn't allowed to leave the building unsupervised and was there for two weeks, so I felt trapped and like an animal. I didn't feel like I was being helped at all, just forgotten and ignored, so it was up to me to get myself better. I guess it did help because it showed me what my lowest point is like and that maybe it's not so scary after all. This is a happy moment filled out by uh, Isabel And she writes, My parents raised me like a tiny art scholar, so I've always had a deep love of all art. My parents took me to the MoMA instead of the playground. My dad is a person who has never had any idea how to relate to a child because of his own disconnected upbringing, so this is the only way he knew how to bond. One of my happiest moments of my life was waiting in line with my dad in an art shop in the south of France to buy a Matisse print. I just remember being five years old and being so totally excited to buy this pretty picture of a bush and being so happy to see the joy in my father's face as he saw I was enjoying myself. We both were reveling in each other's joy and it was really beautiful. That is like the opposite of those parents that freaked out when she told him that she had been raped. It's, it, it takes so little The tiniest gesture can mean so much to a child. Now, again, I don't know what it's like to parent. Uh, You know, I almost screamed at people at Whole Foods uh, because the line was too long and wasn't moving. I can't imagine what it would be like having five kids and you're depressed and, uh, you know, add nine other things. This is also from the psych ward experience uh, survey. Um, This is filled out by a guy who calls himself, I'm not ashamed to use my real name, Joel. He writes, uh, I was at a weekly appointment at the Behavior Health Unit. Uh, Oh, this is the same Joel. While enlisted in the Army, I admitted to having suicidal ideations, which I almost acted on. My commander was called and they sent me. Describe your experience. I really regret not staying and using the tools they could have taught me. I felt like I was sent against my will and just waited until I could sign myself out. And this one this is a big one. Um this was filled out by um a woman who calls herself Cassandra Complex and uh she's in her 50s. And um she writes when I was 19 I was hospitalized for a month at the time I was severely depressed however I now see that it saved my life It's no coincidence that my mother and grandmother both had children at 19 and neither were happy being mothers both suffered from depression my grandmother's had, had my grandmother had bouts of it and my mother was diagnosed clinically depressed at age eight or nine, very rare in those days, and has been all her life. If I hadn't been hospitalized, I'm sure I would have followed in their footsteps and gotten pregnant. I'm also sure I would have committed suicide. Describe your experience. It was awful and it was crazy. And I wrote a little story about it. Here you go. So this is basically her at 19. Uh, I hate group. There's always this slow-talking cowboy know-it-all who monopolizes the session and tells everybody how they're supposed to feel. This guy, Dale, was here the first two weeks I got here. I didn't talk much then anyway, so I was glad he was filling the silence, but I got tired of his droning pretty quickly. The worst was when anyone else would tell how their day went, and instead of getting feedback from the counselor, Dale would monopolize the conversation with his dumb shit advice. Well, I think you should have said something. That's what I would have done. If you don't say anything, then how do you expect anybody to know what you're thinking? I always try to tell people what I'm thinking. Yeah, Dale, we know. Since Dale had been discharged a week ago, things had turned around pretty quickly for me. I had my first day pass last Saturday. My parents came to take me to the movies and the mall for the afternoon. Just a careful little trip out, like it's normal for a 19-year-old to spend Saturday afternoon at Ridgemar Mall with her mom and dad. That's probably why they took me to the Northeast Mall instead. We're less likely to run into someone we know there. At least I'd like to think that they were thinking ahead like that. But then there was their choice of matinee. My first day out of the loony bin, and they take me to see Jessica Lang in Francis. A psychodrama about a young woman who won't conform to society and her mother's will and ends up lobotomized. Oh, and she's an actress. A blonde actress, like me for what it's worth um i found it all kind of sardonic and can't wait to get out of here simply to tell the story to my friends as soon as i make any i ended up here after the only true heart-to-heart i've ever had with god i had it with him over a couple of bottles of sleeping pills um I wasn't sure there were enough there to kill me, but I wasn't sure there weren't enough there to kill me either. And since I'd stopped going to church around sixth grade, the only Jesus I knew was Sunday school Jesus, the one who forgives you for anything uh, you do as long as you ask. Though I had worked into my own theology that the one thing he might not forgive me for is suicide. So I had to figure out if I was damning myself to hell with this action or would Sunday school Jesus forgive me. When it came down to it, I was in such emotional pain that I couldn't imagine a hell that could be worse. I was so alone with my frustration and pain and so thwarted by my family and so angry, so angry. I basically told my own personal savior that if he couldn't forgive me for ending this pain, then he wasn't a very compassionate God after all, and I wasn't sure I wanted to believe in him. Our audio just dropped out. Or, uh, or that I wanted his love. If this was the only love that I was being offered in the whole universe, I was willing to forego it for a little peace instead. When I was committed a few days later, I was amused when the psych nurse asked me if I was still having thoughts of hurting myself. I never had thoughts of hurting myself. I only had thoughts of ending the hurt. But now things are looking a little better. For one thing, I'm starting to think some of this may not be all my problem. When I was being admitted, my mother told the doctor that she wanted to meet with him privately to give him some quote background on me. As soon as she had the meeting, the doctor started seeing her three times a week and had her on stronger meds than I'm on. I have to admit there's something reassuring in that. I'm basically a walking wound. I was born into a legacy of depressed women who all had children at the age of 19. Here I am, 19, and what am I going to do? And not that any of my foremothers were even particularly maternal. My own mom took every opportunity she could as I was growing up to remind me, whatever you do, don't ever have kids. The other sage advice I get from my mom is, learn how to type so you can get a good job. I have much bigger dreams for myself, but her depression and bleak reality have no room for dreams and have little room for me. All she wants for her daughter is a good job. She works as a receptionist since she can't type. That means she's always, that means that she's always nailed down to a front desk and envies the ladies who can walk around, run errands, and sometimes hang out with the salesmen at the car dealership where she's been working for the past five years, and she's miserable there. Not that she's been happy anywhere else, but she's particularly miserable there. Car dealers run in their own strata of society, and J W of J W Chevrolet, Pontiac, and Buick is particularly famous in my town. I've withheld the name of the, the dealership. Um, you'll probably understand why. Uh, he stars in his own commercials and fancies himself a motivational speaker. He even gave the commencement address at my high school graduation two years ago. And he has all these motivational sayings posted all around my mother's desk that drive her nuts. Stuff like, Ruthlessly compete against your own best self. People buy from people they trust, and they trust people they like. And taking accurate messages is the difference between copying and creative writing. What does that even mean? For a victim of everything like my mother, it's too much to bear. However, however, anyone would have had trouble bearing this particular hypocrisy, however, Anyone would have had trouble bearing this particular hypocrisy since JW, Chevrolet, Pontiac, and Buick also has some of the crookedest repairmen in town. My mother comes home all the time with stories about how these jerks were bragging about ripping off their customers. and My mom is the one who has to take the calls and messages when the repairmen are hiding from the customers. It just gives my mother one more thing to resign herself to. The real world isn't fair. But I will not be resigned. And this battle of wills between my mom's resignation from all things and my struggle to the death to win over the despair is what has brought me here. And now that I'm going into my fourth and what will be my final week here, Dale is back at group. But he's not talking this time. He's quiet. He's even asked to contribute and he just shakes his head, shakes his head and looks at the floor. It's kind of sad, really though we were so happy without him. So sad to see him back. I've promised myself that I will not recidivate. Recidivate? Yeah. Uh, or whatever you call coming back. In the few weeks I've been here, I've seen so many leave and come back, uh, come right back a few days later. That is not an option for me. This Natalie Wood splendor-in-the-grass melodrama is all good fun and dramatic and all, but I really don't want to spend the rest of my life playing this role. I have more range than this. And since Dale left, I ascended a bit, I think. Not that he ruled the roost anywhere outside of group, but all us inmates have been having trouble with the staff, especially the night staff. They mainly consist of students from the Baptist seminary pulling graveyard shift so they can study the Bible in the relative calm of a psych ward. And there's something freeing about being certifiable. I can cuss like a sailor at the Baptists just to watch them jump. I would never do that on the outside. And we can give them absolute hell when they fuck with us. Like when they declare something against the rules that we've been doing all night, like listening to albums in the snack room. All of a sudden, we're not allowed to stand around while we're in there. Everyone has to be seated, and the TV has to be turned off during head count, which is in the middle of a show. And when we protest, they say it's in the rule book. And if we ask to see the rule book, they say uh, we need written notice from our doctor. It's all bullshit, and they know we know it. So I started a formal complaint procedure once Dale was gone, and group actually became a productive time, and that led to elections of a ward spokesman, and I was nominated and elected, my first election, spokesman of my mental ward. How should I list that on my resume? But really, what this reveals is that I'm starting to find constructive ways to stand up for myself. I still lose it on occasion. I'm still no good with unreasonableness. Like the other day when I came back from group and the staff had changed my room. They moved all my things into another room completely, without any warning. It was such a violation. The little piece of ground that I had found solid had been yanked. But I made a formal protest, not like the night I was on the phone with my mother trying to get her to understand that it's not that she's a horrible mother, but that I need to be able to assert myself without feeling like I'll destroy her. I felt like I was finally defending myself when one of the Baptists came by and hung up the phone. No warning, nothing. Just click, and it's time for you to go to your room. That night, I raged like I'll never rage again. I paced and screamed like a banshee. I exercised 19 years of demons and did it in a trance-like state that lasted until my doctor could be summoned from the other side of town and brought into the hospital at well after midnight. Though it may not have been a sane response, it felt like an appropriate one. And getting the sanity out was, getting the insanity out was a catharsis I will always honor but now we're back in group and we're all trying to coax Dale into speaking again. It's hard to believe that we would do this since we know once we do he'll never shut up, but he's been sitting there for days now, so forlorn, and we all feel like we need to know why he's back, what happened outside that was so horrible that brought him right back and silenced him too. Finally, Dale starts to spill. I needed to get my car fixed. My wife needed hers for work, and mine's been sitting in the garage since I was admitted two months ago. It's still under warranty, so I took it back to the dealers. I think I might just have needed the battery changed, but I asked them to do a tune-up, and they just wouldn't listen to me. I kept asking them nicely, but the first guy started making fun of me, and then he brought a second guy in, and then they all started giving me the runaround, and I was trying to do the breathing exercises that the doctor taught us, but I also felt like I had to speak up for myself. They just didn't seem to understand what I was saying. He started to tear up a little, and then he said, JW, Chevrolet, Pontiac, and Buick are supposed to be the best in town, but they just wouldn't listen to me. I kept trying to explain it to them, but they just kept saying things that didn't make sense to me. I didn't know what to do. I finally called my wife, and she brought me back here. And that's when I realized that we weren't the crazy people. We were the sane ones. We are the sensitive ones. We are the ones who can't always make sense of the craziness in the world, and sometimes it scares the hell out of us. The people in my loony bin were locked up for their own protection, to protect them from the assholes out there in the real world. I may, ne- I may never love Dale, but I'll always remember him. That was one of the most memorable survey. Responses I, I, I've ever read. That was that was so beautiful and poetic and uh, sweet and heartbreaking and I can't believe your parents took you to see Francis. Wow, wow. Um, and finally, here's a happy moment. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself. Um, actually, uh, it's a girl. She's sixteen. Uh, she calls herself. I'm not funny and she writes, my little half-sister is the absolute light of my life. She's five, and she's in that phase where she wants to be like the big kids, so she likes to dress like me and say things that I say, uh, etc. We have different moms, but we still look very much alike, and she knows it. One day, I came out into the living room to hang out with her while her mom went to the store. After a minute, she got excited, as she often does, and ran into her room. A minute later, without saying a word, she returned wearing a black tank top and dark blue jean shorts. The exact outfit I was wearing. I wanted to take a picture, so she posed with me in front of the mirror, pulling our dog into the picture too. It was, one, so hilarious, and two, the sweetest thing ever. To be loved so completely and unconditionally by such a beautiful, innocent, perfect human being with no ulterior ulterior motives is one of the best feelings I can imagine. The fact that she wants to be like me, that she doesn't know whether I'm fucked up or a bad person or maybe have terrible taste in clothes, is so reassuring. It makes me want to do absolute everything I can to be a good sister to her. She makes me so happy, and I love her so much more than words can say. Love that. Love that. Well, guys, thanks for... uh, Thanks for listening. And um, if you're out there and you're stuck, just make one phone call. Just make one phone call. Maybe to a, a friend that you think might understand or to a therapy office or maybe a rehab or a crisis line. Anything. Just try one thing. You don't have to change your whole life. Just one thing and see... See if that doesn't get the ball rolling. Uh, it's easier to get the ball rolling than you, than you think it is. Um, and just remember that you're not alone. And uh, thanks for
1: listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely, beautiful. beautifully, fucked know is bizarrely beautifully, beautifully, beautifully fucked up in some weird way.